This is John Schultz. I'm Windish. Charlie from Crescent Ballroom. Craig Newman. Dave Brooks. Dave Chumley here. Dave Ratner. John Holiday. Ted Becknell. LX. Imong Shaw. Kelly Lesko. Gerald B. Henley. Harlan Fry here. Jack Ross. Jason Miller. Jeffrey Fox. Joe Escalante. Fleur LeBlanc. Martin Atkins. Neil Dixon. Nick Farkas. Paula Palazzo. And I'm on Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101! Welcome back, cats and kittens. It's time for Promoter 101, episode 31. I'm Dan Steinberg, joined always with Luke Pierce. Great to have you all back. We are excited for the legendary UK agent and manager Rob Hallett to join us on today's podcast. We've also got the COO of Ticketmaster Canada, Patty Ann Tarleton, Beck's tour manager, Sasha Mbaji, and comic Amy Miller is going to be joining us a little bit later in this podcast. Plus, we've got three questions with Kim Badir. My name is Reese Ryan Stemmer, and you can watch my daddy on Promoter 101. Dan and I are headed back out on the road this fall. Our tour dates are going to include the Emerald City on September 7th. Beantown, get ready for you. Boston, we're going to be up your way on October 12th. And Music City will be there the following week. More details on those dates are going to be coming soon. If you want to see us, please ask your university bookers and conference organizers to bring Promoter 101, the podcast, to your town for a live taping. Or just by emailing us at steiny at promoter101.net. My name is Larry LeBlanc. I'm the senior editor of uh, Celebrity uh, Access. I live in Toronto, and I'm on Promoter 101. It's time for the news of the week. Let's start with the rumors and speculations. There is word all around about Led Zeppelin reuniting for Desert Trip. It would be their 50th anniversary, and there's lots of hubbub about it, but nobody knows for sure. AEG's not talking. No word from Paul Tillette yet. What do you think, Luke? I think this could be a bunch of things. You know, Polestar speculated it was that Led Zeppelin reunion at Desert Trip. It is the 50th anniversary. Other people are just saying it could be a Robert Plant album. It'd be about time. Robert Plant's album was 2014. Lullaby and the Roar is his last release. So who knows? I don't know. Given everything that Robert Plant has talked about, how tedious he feels that he led Zeppelin repertoire is for him to perform and how he'd rather be out there with Alison Krauss, I could totally see this just being another record and everybody jumping to the best conclusion, which is Desert Trip 2. Led Zeppelin reunion. I mean, AEG would have to back up uh, the Brinks truck for that particular occasion. Wouldn't you imagine, Dan? Well, it's never been a problem for them to roll out the cash, but you got to ask yourself, who are the other bands? I mean, maybe Black Sabbath, although they did just do their last show, but I think you could possibly balance out a Led Zeppelin with a final Black Sabbath shows. But it's going to be heavier if you've got Zeppelin. And who do you bring out? Maybe the Stones come back for a second year because they're cool enough to do it and they're a big enough band to headline their own night again. But who's left? I mean, Fleetwood Mac's not going to do it. Eagles aren't going to do it because they're doing the classics on both coasts. So that's not there. What are we playing with at this point? Maybe Elton John, Billy Joel together? I mean, they've done that, right? They did that in stadiums. I think it's right for that crowd. Led Zeppelin's a great pick for that. Let me ask you this, Dan. If it is Led Zeppelin, do you think they're doing more shows and festivals after that, or is this a one-and-done thing? No, I think we saw with O2, these guys are playing what they're playing, and that's it. They're going to do the high marquee thing and be gone. They're not going to tour. They really don't want to revisit it, but if they do it, they're going to do it in massive fashion and kill it. Is Desert Trip that venue, though? I mean, this is like the old cello venue, right? That's certainly the crowd, but is it like, is that the marquee look that you go out on? I don't know. 
I don't know that they're looking to go out on anything. I mean, the guys are pretty much able to write their own ticket. If they wanted to do stadiums, they could do it. If they wanted to do arenas, they could. The question is, what do those guys feel like doing? And that question is yet to be answered. And clearly, Paul and Jay and John Meglin, they don't want to just go back out there and throw up another show. It's not going to be a weak classic lock lineup. They're either going to carry the brand correctly or they're not going to do it at all. And that's why you haven't seen them announce a second year yet. They're clearly getting all of their chicks in a row here. And it's going to be a great show if they pull it off or they're not going to come with it. The brand is that good. All right. Let's talk about some more fallout from Fire Festival. Last week, we talked about the disaster in the Caribbean, where festival goers are promised a luxury experience on an island previously owned by drug kingpin Pablo Escobar. It was, by all accounts, a gigantic shit show. And despite the organizers' responses for a better event next year in 2018, a civil suit has already been filed by super lawyer Mike Garagos in the amount of $100 million. Garagos had worked with Michael Jackson and Chris Brown in the past. So not at all surprised that anyone is taking aim at Ja Rule and his cohort of investors and operators who seemingly, as these stories keep coming out, more and more did very little to prepare for this festival. So whether this was just a get-rich scheme, negligence, or incompetence, I don't really think it matters. This is just the beginning of legal headaches for Ja Rule and co. as they start to face out the ramifications of this massive fuck-up in the Caribbean. All right, let's get to the point of Nobody cares anymore. Like, the people that got taken are douches, and nobody gives a fuck. Ja Rule's got no money. At least I doubt that he does. Nobody's going to get paid. This is going to turn out to be what to do about nothing, because you're not going to be able to collect, because it was out of the country anyway. It was in the Bahamas. So good luck catching those people and trying to settle up. But I'm tired of hearing about Firefest. Like, these guys are morons. Good luck trying to do another year. You're promising everybody refunds. You're promising you're doing another year. Go the fuck away already so we can all get back to business. Let's talk about some real festivals. Austin City Limits announced their lineup. They brought out Jay-Z. They brought out the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Chance the Rapper, The Killers, Gorillas, Ice Cube, Brian Adams, Run the Jewels, Head in the Heart, Foster the People. They brought the lineup. It's amazing to see how many of the acts are only doing one weekend or the other opposed to doing both weekends. And that's an interesting thing, although every act I did just mention are doing both weekends. But I'm curious if they were trying to make it a different festival each week kind of vibe with the support bill being different each week or if they were having a hard time convincing acts to both weekends. What do you think, Luke? I think for where ACL falls in a fall cycle, schedule, availability, the dates in the calendar certainly come in more of a play versus the festival season that lines up kind of beginning in April with Coachella through the end of the summer. So I certainly think that ACL has a little bit more to do with the calendar than some of the places. I think some people just may be willing to do one week and maybe a money thing. So uh, it's hard to say. It's got to be an act by act situation. But unlike other festivals, I think ACL definitely has a calendar issue. Certainly a fan of seeing Jay-Z and the Chili Peppers on a lineup together with Head in the Heart. I think that's some great diverse booking from our friends at C3. Well done, gentlemen. We're nearing the end of the Q1 earnings seasons on Wall Street and Live Nation is in with a better-than-expected Q1 $31 million loss. That's driven by double-digit growth in ticketing and growth in their advertising and branding businesses. 
CEO Michael Rapino was excited about the prospects of 2017, adding a quote that I'll read right now. This year we booked more shows, sold more tickets, and have more sponsorship commitments than ever before at this point in the calendar year. With the strength of these leading indicators, I'm confident we will once again deliver record top line operating income and an AOI performance in each of our businesses in 2017. Dan, I think this is a great sign of the general health of the live entertainment business all around. Live Nation, who we've ragged on before on this podcast about never making money, narrows their loss a little bit in a quarter that's traditionally down for them, increases revenue. We're seeing all parts of their business move forward, which is very promising for anyone operating a live business. Wouldn't you agree? Well, I definitely don't feel like I've ever ragged on Live Nation, but let's talk about $31 million loss. Now, for what they're doing in the billions of dollars of revenue, it really is a drop in the bucket. The margin is really that thin that they were that close to breaking even based on what their volume was. So for Q1 to be at a $31 million loss and coming into the summer season where that's where they make their money in the amphitheaters, I I think you're going to see them rebound from that loss and you're going to see them pick up big sales throughout the end of the year and have some good profits. Their stock prices are showing strong signs and I think it's a good thing for the industry all the way around. Yeah, you, you got to imagine that it's a $31 million loss on a $1.4 billion top line. So it, it's not like this is a, you know, as you said, a, a huge loss in this. And it's not like Live Nation is a business that consistently delivers profitable results by any means. You know, they, they continue to grow their business under Rapino's leadership. They're making some really great strategic moves, not only just in the festival space, but the way they've aligned their acts and brands together. Obviously, it's a massive player on the global stage. I just think it's a great leading indicator for all of us that are operating in the live space that things are healthy in the macro economy. Well, and let's also point out that the $31 million loss includes their investments into their selves with acquisitions and all of the things that they're developing. So that's not necessarily a long-term loss as much as it is growth because the company has certainly turned themselves around. There is good things happening on the front of Live Nation and their company stock price reflects that. Right. I mean, Live Nation has had a few quarters in the past year where it has been cash flow positive. You know, this being net income, it's not necessarily the same distinction that they're making there. You know, they they are writing down some losses on particular tours. But I got to imagine that this is a year where Live Nation is going to spin off some some cash for sure. Well, yeah, I mean, everybody's going to have bad shows. Nobody has a crystal ball. But when you got guys that are out there booking the way that we see Jeff Wills in the comedy division doing it, and you got Brian O'Connell doing it, and you've got some of the regional offices run by Jeff Gordon who are just killing it, you got to respect where some of these guys are going. And it seems like they're really starting to fire on all cylinders. The competition between AEG and Live Nation is still real, and the rest of the country is still battling. But you see one and two going at it, and Live Nation has really stepped up their game. Sad news coming out of Atlanta this week. During the celebration of his 70th birthday, Colonel Bruce Hampton fell over during the encore of his tribute show to him at the Atlanta Fox. He later passed away at the hospital. The industry is moved by this as well as the crowd to see someone that was beloved so much and honored pass at a moment that was clearly built up and so special in his hometown. You never want to see anybody go. There was certainly a poeticness to the way he went. And the fact that he got to make it through his show that he was being honored for on his 70th birthday is just amazing all the way around. But 
a tragic, tragic story, but so beloved. Luke? I don't know whether to be haunted or overjoyed by this. I mean, he's on stage with TTB's Derek Trucks and Susan Tedeschi and widespread panics John Bell and John Fishman and Jeff Scheip and the Leftover Salmon's guys are all on stage surrounding him. They finish Love Light around Bruce before closing the curtain. It is, it's almost haunting, but it's also pretty overjoyous. I mean, the way he went out is incredible. On stage, on, on his 70th birthday, during the finale, surrounded by friends. Just what a way to go. You know, everybody thought that he was just joking around at first. Nobody thought that was real. I mean, the timing of it all just didn't make sense. It just was built for that. But I can't think of anything more poetic, an amazing career than going out in front of your audience while they're celebrating you in your hometown theater on a night like that. Of tragic, of course, and he will be messed. R.I.P. the Colonel. That's it for the news of the week. We've got some birthdays to celebrate this week. Monday, Black Jacket Symphonies, Jason Rogoff, ICM's Scott Mantell, SMG's John Bolton. On Tuesday, we're wishing a happy birthday to Fleetwood Wax manager Carl Stubner. On Thursday, Paramount Theater Oakland, Leslie Stewart, William Morris's Brian Ahern, and Red Light's Kevin Morris. On Friday, SLO's Shelley Lazar and Paradigm's Jenny DeLoach. On Saturday, festival promoter Danny Wimmer. And on Sunday, manager Adam Parsons and Instagram's Claudine Casey and Brits. Hey, everybody. I'm Chuck Randall. I'm a tour manager, tour director, and a tour accountant for, well, all of your favorite bands. Going back to the mid-80s, I've been doing it for about 30 years. A few of the ones that you may have heard of include uh, Bob Weir and Rat Dog and The Grateful Dead. And uh, most recently, 11 years with Alice in Change, The Cult, Corn, Garbage, you know, The Goo Goo Dolls. And here I am on Promoter 101. It wouldn't be Promoter 101 without the tweets of the week. Let's see what Dan had rambling around this week. If you're not following Dan already, be sure to check him out on Twitter, at The Jew. Always fear agents that say no problem without checking with the artist's team. Sometimes it's fine, but the bigger the act, the more complex the production. And less likely that someone sitting behind a desk has any power to compromise anything without talking in depth to the guys that are on the road that are building those shows. And in the bounds of all of the production issues that can come up day of, there's really no chance that that desk jockey will likely be present for load-in and good luck getting them on the phone at 8 a.m. when load-in starts. So you really, really want those production guys in the loop. Fuck your no problem. The amount of paperwork involved with putting on a concert in a performing arts center can be overwhelming. I reviewed a 48-page contract for a simple PAC date this week. There has to be a realistic middle ground when we can find somewhere between a simple email outlining the basic deals of terms and a 40-page epic contract. We need to standardize contracts in the industry, not only for the venues, but for the artists too, at least through the theater level. There's got to be a simpler way. Can't agree more with that. When you remind the agent you're not the promoter of record, only to be told they don't care about past history. You don't really have to remind us. We know you don't care about the history. But you can at least pretend that you care. You don't have history if you passed in the last two marketplaces. If you lost face in the act and someone else got them through the market, you can't come back claiming history. 
It's like trying to fuck your ex after she's already in another relationship. It's just bad form, dude. When a show is already not selling and management informs you they will be recording the date for their special. Yeah, let's let the entire world see that we can't fill a room. Good idea, dumbass. When someone is the subject of a tweet and only likes it instead of retweeting it as if it takes any more time. Seriously, retweets and reposts aren't any harder. Please, please help support your shows. That's it for Promoter 101 Tweets of the Week. Be sure to follow Dan on Twitter at The Jew. This is Arielle Hyatt from Cyber PR on the Promoter 101 podcast. It's time once again for three questions where listeners come on the show and get to ask Steiny and I any three questions they'd like, industry, personal, whatever they want. Most importantly, we haven't seen these questions in advance. This week, we are joined by the Tacoma Domes, Kim Badir. Kim, what's your questions? I think it would be really cool for the listeners and for the people here in the room to understand how you got in the industry, because I think you have a really cool story. I couldn't sing or dance, so I realized that running an Excel program would definitely give me a much better chance of longevity in a career. And it turns out that most of the guys I started with that were playing have all moved on to other things, but I still have that Excel program. You have, in a way, discovered a lot of incredible artists. What is it about you that makes them want to work with you over and over again? I think I'm a sparkling personality that it's a joy to be around. There was and, a murmuring in the crowd about that right, one. Right, no, it's, acapella was great because PBS was attached to Straight No Chaser, which was our first endeavor into that. And with PBS came this relationship of promoters not understanding the concept of an infomercial that would be running for 50 tickets. It's like, you can have your band on TV seven, eight, 12 times for the cost of what you're going to give radio anyway. So who's your favorite up-and-coming artist that you wish you were attached to right now? Uh, there's a lot of good stuff that's out there right now. I really like Anderson East, Sturgill Simpson, I'm Puddle's Pity Party. Vasey Washington is... If I have a vice, I love shows like The Voice. As somebody in the music industry, do you think they have any validity? Well, I think the vehicle's not so much for the people on the show. It's for the people that are judging on the show, and it's done great things for Blake and Gwen. If somebody should happen to break, like Carrie did off of Idol, great, but it's yet to happen. You asked me what my favorite industry memory was. What's yours? We did Scorpion's 6,000 fans on their feet. It was an amazing moment of electricity of the crowd and watch the biggest band in Germany take stage and see my daughter next to me on one side and Steve Martin on the other side of me. And that was a cool feeling. Thanks for joining us on Promoter 101 for three questions, Kim. If you'd like to ask us three questions on an upcoming episode of Promoter 101, please email us at steiny at promoter101.net. Hi, this is Scott Perry. You can catch me on Promoter 101 with Dan Steinberg. This week, our first interview, we're joined by legendary agent and concert promoter from the UK, the great Rob Hallett. Promoter 101, I'm here at ILMC, got a legend in the suite. Rob, thank you for taking time on your birthday to be with us. Uh, you're welcome. So, a little bit of history. How did you become the icon that you are today? I wouldn't say I was an icon. How have I survived? I said it, you didn't. It's how, all right. How have I survived this long in this crazy industry? Ah, oh, goodness. I started in the late 70s as a fan. Well, like we all used to. And the business has changed dramatically. But uh, 
when I started, we were all fans. We weren't college graduates or anything. We just loved our music. And I started promoting at 17 in pubs in Brighton at a time when you had to be 18 to even go in and have a drink. Respect that. <laughs> so I was promoting a lot of local bands and then the punk scene started. And I read an article in Melody Maker that Malcolm McLaren, who managed the Sex Pistols, couldn't find an agent because the traditional agents didn't take them seriously. And so I called him up, told him I was an agent somehow persuaded him that was true and became the Pistols agent for two weeks. For two weeks? For two weeks, yeah. How did that end? Uh, not well. <laughs> um, you know, as you can imagine, 17-year-old kid trying to book out a hot band not knowing what the hell you're doing. So I called up the first place and I said, you know, hey, I've got some... Actually, I lied. I said... An agent lied? Yeah, exactly. Wow. There was uh, a band at number one at the time in the English charts called Sutherland Brothers and Quiver that had a hit called Lying in the Arms of Mary. So my spiel was I'd phone up the club who wouldn't be offered an act to that level in the first place so they wouldn't know and said, hey, you know, my name is Rob Hallett from Domino Promotions was the name I made up and said that we were agents of Sutherland Brothers and Quiver but unfortunately as they were number one they were rather busy but I had this new group that you should check out called the Sex Pistols. Figuring lightning strikes twice. Yeah. Kind of. And, you know, a few people you know, didn't know who they were, poo-poo, didn't answer the phone, whatever. And then I got a bite. You know, oh, yeah, I've heard about them. They're causing a bit of a buzz in London, aren't they? Yeah, yeah da -da -da. how much do you want? Ah, I forgot to ask that question. That's, uh... So I said, um, what do you think? And the guy said, 50 quid. Oh, 50 pound, gosh. At the time, I was on a 30 pound a month social security, having just left college. So... You know, like, gosh, I'm on 30 quid a week. It's a month, and he's offering 50 quid for a night. Come on, that's good. So let's do it. So I went around, and I used that as my template, and I booked about 15 shows. And I called up Malcolm and said, I've got good news. I've got 15 shows for you. He goes, great, fantastic. How much? And I said, 50 quid a night. He said, you've done what? You know, I can't do it for 50 quid a night. I need at least 150. Uh, uh, anyway, I phoned round, saved a couple, didn't save many, and got fired. And then they found a proper agent in John Jackson, so <laughs> who um, took it forward. Yeah, so that was my intro into the business. All right, and how did that leap into the next step? Because obviously you didn't give up after you were let go from that act after two weeks. Oh, absolutely, I'd become a pseudo punk and hanging around the punk punk scene. And uh, I went to the Hundred Club Punk Festival, the famous one that anyone who's ever been into punk, the one where you know um, Shane McGann had his ear bitten off. Oi, Sid oi. Vicious and Susie and the Banshees had Sid Vicious on drums in their band before he joined the Sex Pistols and the Sex Pistols still had Glenn on bass and a group called The Damned were playing managed by Ron Watt who was the manager of the 100 Club at the time somehow I convinced Ron Watts that I was wrongly dismissed from the Sex Pistols and that really I was a kid with the finger on the pulse and that I should be his agent and I'd, I'd do a better job so Somehow he agreed, and I became the dam's agent. And now, how long did that last? That lasted a while. Okay. That lasted, I mean, it seemed like, I don't know, maybe it was a couple of months. I don't know, it seemed, at the time, it seemed like a while. <laughs> and then they introduced me to a band. But anything over two weeks was a win. Yeah, exactly, exactly. They introduced me to a band called Eater that had a 14-year-old drummer called Degenerate, who I started to manage. And then the industry started taking notice of, you know, this loudmouth brash kid who was uh, booking a bunch of punk acts. At an agency by this time, we called it Bootleg Artists. And then I got picked up by March Artists, which was, back in the day, everyone talks about 360 being a trendy word, but back in the day, CBS had CBS Records, April Music, which was the publishing, and March Artists, which was an agency. And I went there, a chap was run by a chap called Dave Woods, who sadly passed away. Uh, myself and Steve Parker, 
who runs Audience Magazine, if anyone's ever read Audience Magazine. He was there as well. And we had a great roster. We had The Clash. We had Susie and the Banshees. We had Psychedelic Furs, the Fabulous Poodles, Mijur's first band called Slick, uh, way before Band-Aid. And I became the sole booker of the hottest punk club in London after the Roxy closed down called The Vortex. Legendary club. Yeah, and if you played there, you had to come through me. So I, by this time, I was like 18 and a half, and I was fucking... Yeah, I had my finger. That was what, like four fifty cap, something like that. Yeah, something like that. We had everyone. We had Johnny Funders and the Heartbreakers, who I became agent for. Wayne County Electric Chairs, who I became agent for. And then uh, we had yeah, the Pistols never did it. Then we had we started the punky reggae parties there. So we'd have Sham sixty nine and Black Slate, or we'd have uh, yeah, we'd we'd start that mix there, and that got me into reggae, and. Um, I went off to Jamaica and came back with a bunch of, of reggae acts and started booking reggae. I had Culture, U Roy, I Roy, the Gladiators, the Mighty Diamonds, bunch of acts. There might have been a time where you might have discovered marijuana heavier in your life, I imagine. Uh, I, might have, uh, I might have had the odd uh, toke from time to time. And I was 19 and I managed Tapazuki. And I came back with Tapazuki, signed him to Virgin Frontline, and then I started my own label agency just for reggae artists called Manic Artists. And I brought all those guys over to England and did UK tours. It's all going round and around and around. <laughs> I'm geeking out on this, sorry, I'm loving it. So, where was I? So, yeah, so punk and reggae. Manic then Artists. UB40 came into my life. UB40 contacted me because I was a reggae dude. And yeah, they hadn't put a record out yet or anything, you know. Critical Mass, they wanted to be where the big guy was at. Be, yeah, they were reggae fans, and you know. And at the time, I was a bit of a reggae son, you know, white boys from Birmingham playing reggae. Sure, yeah. So uh, I, uh, but I listened to them, and they were great guys, and we became friends. And I became their agent, and that led me to Martin Hopewell and John Jackson's attention because you before he was starting being a bit more poppy, and they said, okay, you can come and work at Cowbell. Just get rid of all that reggae, get rid of all that yeah, stuff and come, yeah, we believe that you could be a decent agent. So I started working for Cowbell. It was myself, Martin Hopewell, John Jackson, Jeff Craft, and Martin Horn. So literally nobody in the business at all. Nobody's, nobody's still in the business now. And I was a very junior one of us. I, was, I think I'm the youngest of all that lot. <laughs> and Richard Cowdy and Kenny Bell were still there at the time. We started the whole thing. And you before he came up to me one day and said, uh, you know, hey, we got, this is band that rehearsed next to us. You're not going to like them. You know, they're not great. But uh, they're going to be big. They look good. They've got these horrible pop songs, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I say, oh, okay, well, you know, that, that sounds like a kind of mixed, mixed messages, but let me go and check it out. So I went up to see UB's rehearse in Birmingham and went in next door, and there was these uh, four or five guys, you know, makeup, bouffant hair, and, you know, new romantic clothes singing Planet Earth. And turned out to be Duran Duran, who <laughs> I um, took on, famously went around the world. We became one of the biggest groups in the world. It was a fantastic period of my life. Still some of my best friends. John's godfather to my son, still probably my best friend in life. We ended up sharing a flat together in the 80s. Uh, in London, which was pretty wild. And it put me kind of on that pop map. 
And then Adam and the Ant, who I was agent for um, as, as a punk, uh, turned into pop with the Kings of the World Frontier record. And so he came back to me. So and then EMI, it's all coming full circle. Yeah, it all came full circle. And then EMI because of Duran Duran, yeah, were recommending acts to me, and I was recommending acts to them. So in the eighties, I ended up with a roster: UB40, Duran Duran, Kajagoo, Talk Talk. God, I had, yeah, I, had, I had a pretty hefty roster in the eighties as an agent to the point where and then i, I left calva somewhere in there and went to Derek blocks and then i guess i was getting a little bit cocksure and it's kind of I've got all these acts he's not paying me enough money i'm making this guy rich i'm not getting anything out of it you know I, i've had enough of this um so i kind of rather petulantly walked out made a deal with someone else who's uh, who was going to pay me a lot more and give me a, a piece of the company so i went to work the first day and i got an injunction on put on me a guy knocked on the office door on a motorbike, crash helmet, boom, injunction from Derek Block. I couldn't work for a year. And where Derek Block was clever, stroke nasty, <laughs> is that he paid me my salary that I had to take because it was only, it was only £15,000 a year, but I had to take it because I had to eat and pay my rent. Uh, but it was too much to get legal aid at the time. So it wasn't enough to fight it legally. And it was too much too to much get to legal get aid. Yeah, yeah, that's... So it's amazing. Yeah. S22. Yeah. Genius. So I was out for a year trying to fight this until the point where I had enough money to go to court and just say, look, this is bullshit. Yeah, you can't stop a 20-year-old, 22-year-old kid working for a year longer than a year. He's had his pound of flesh enough. And uh, the judge agreed. And off I went on my merry way, which wasn't EOFR. I was then, I was sitting there thinking, okay, what do I do now? I'm free to work. What do I do? And I read an article somewhere. It wasn't audience, so it wasn't, um, I don't know what magazine we had in the industry that day. The, anyway, but the Carl Layton Pope had left, what was the agency? It's now code. It was called Pan Agency or whatever it was called before. God, my brain's going now. And so I phoned up Phil Banfield and said, hey, you know, I'll come and replace Carl. And he said, uh, okay, great, come. Yeah, bye-bye. So we made a deal, cut long story short. I went to work there. Didn't work out. Didn't work out at all. I think I lasted about six months. Personality clashes without going into details, but it didn't work. So there I am back on the street, you know. Everyone's thinking, you know, I've got this whiz kid from the eight years. He had all these, all this acts, all this action. Came in and out of the business like a whirlwind. Blah blah blah. Actually, those are Barry Marshall's words because I came to an ILMC and uh, I was sitting at the bar, and Barry Marshall and Doris Dixon were there, and the huge queues in the old days when it was in Portman Square. And uh, Barry Marshall goes, uh, you know, where have you been? You came in this business like, you know, as I said before, like a whirlwind and disappeared. Where have you been? What are you doing? And I went, ah. Oh. You know, I don't know, I'm just trying to reestablish myself, get back. And he said, well, why don't you come and work for me? And I said, well, because you haven't asked me. So anyway, six months later, it took to do a deal. I started at martial arts, which was the best thing that ever happened to me. And with Barry's guidance and mentorship, I became turned from an agent into a promoter. By this time, it's 1990, and the music world's changing somewhat. My first big success was R. Kelly, born in the 90s. David Zedek, still my friend to this day, sold me R. Kelly for Hamas of Odeon. That's my thing. It was the first major show I promoted. And through the 90s, I had a very successful time at martial arts with great support from the whole team. And I ended up doing R. Kelly, Britney Spears, The Backstreet Boys, Destiny's Child. That shit's not very punk rock. No, I just moved into because I just I, don't know, I moved away from the punk thing. I think Duran got me into pop. And then I was, it was just the next step. Yeah, I was always into black music, but I was into the kind of funky stuff, the more street stuff. You know, I mean, after one time in my life, I forgot to mention I was agent for 
the Fatback Band and Brass Construction and George and Gwen McRae and stuff like that. Uh, what's that agency called? Barracuda Artists. That fitted in before March Artists and after Bootleg Artists, somewhere around right there. <laughs> so it's a black music and the reggae thing, of course. So black music would be, and I loved the uh, R. Kelly record, and I brought him over, and then. No one else in the UK was really looking. Actually, no, I should actually respect to jazz. But when I uh, first went to martial arts, I didn't have any acts because, you know, it was... Uh didn't go well with uh, PAN. It didn't, you know, I, I'd been out of the business for a year, so I didn't really have anything. So Barry said, okay, well, you know, why don't you start? I've got an Al Jarreau tour to do. You know, you book that because I'm doing something else. And then, you know, here's some jazz people. So I started booking Al Jarreau in the jazz festivals. He had the same manager as David Sanborn, so I started booking David Sanborn in the, in the jazz festivals. Yeah, so then I reached out to Herbie Hancock, who I'd known since Rocket, and said, hey, Herbie, you know, love to be your agent, blah, blah, blah. So I started booking Herbie, and I built up a, a nice little jazz roster that was paying the bills and kicking over. But I always, I hankered after the bigger pop stuff. Mainstream cool. Yeah, mainstream. Not to say that Herbie Hancock's not cool. Oh, but that Herbie guy Hancock's is, the coolest dude on the planet. Cool you kidding shit me? Right there. He's still way cooler than 19-year-olds now, and he's probably the only true genius I've ever met. I don't know, maybe I mentioned other artists going forward as a couple of others, but he certainly the first genius I ever met that you actually caught a genius. The guy is incredible incredible anyway I started booking a lot of jazz just yeah so I, but with, with an eye on the prize of yeah, getting back into the mainstream and R. Kelly in Born Into the Night came out which, uh, and David Zedek was a famous artist at the time and uh, you know, I called David I didn't know him from Adam and he said oh you know I'm a fan of this record I want to do the tour and you know so I did Robert and I did him for all through the 90s for several tours but with David our relationship became very strong and we did the Backstreet Boys together we did Britney Spears together we did NSYNC together we did Justin Timberlake together so basically David and I you know became Jive sort of live arm David was the agent I was the promoter in Europe and the night is proved very successful period I, where I maintained my jazz relationships at the same time doing all these huge pop acts and got really more and more into the urban scene Mary J Blige uh, Casey and Jojo uh, that whole generation of swing bear I brought over to at Black Street, Teddy Riley, and all of that. So it brings us to the end of the century. And as throughout my career, I started getting itchy feet again. I love Barry. I really do to this day. I saw him yesterday. He's, he's still one of my heroes. I mean, you talk about icons. He's a true icon. There's an icon for you as a, as a promoter. But it was my Barry Marshall. It was called Martial Arts. And I was Rob Hallett. I wasn't Rob Marshall. And, you know, there's certain acts... Yeah, especially when you get to the bigger acts in America and establish acts, you know, they want to deal with the boss. They, they want to deal with the head of the company. And, you know, okay, Rob, can you introduce me to Barry? And started coming into the conversation from time. You know, as I say, utmost respect and love him. But I thought, hang on, if Rob Hallett's career is going to go up any further, or am I going to be Barry Marshall's number two for the rest of my life? So with great regret, I resigned. Barry and Doris and Jenny are still my friends to this day. There's a little bit of... You know, was a little bit uncomfortable for a few months at first, but um, we're still friends, as so I've got utmost respect. And I joined another old friend of mine, Vince Power, at the Mean Fiddler. Mm. And the trick there was the Mean Fiddler wanted to go public, so they were going to the market here, the alternative investment market called AIM. And there was a disparate group of companies. We had Reading Festivals, Leeds Festival, we had a bunch of bars, the Astoria, Jazz Cafe couple of restaurants and all this city were getting 
hard to get their heads around. What, what, what is this business? So Vince said to me, like, oh, what I want you to do is come in and sex it up. So when we did tours, you know, we put in the Financial Times a picture of, um, of Beyonce in a stage costume and it's the SM Mean Fiddler about to launch doing the Beyonce tour. Next week, picture of Britney Spears, you know, in her stage costume, half naked. Yeah, uh, next week, yeah, Britney Spears, yeah, next week, Mean Fiddler launch, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I had a, some very successful five years there. I did the Jay-Z tour, I did an Usher tour, I did the Destiny's Child tour and open airs. I think I did Beyonce's first solo tour out of there. And it floated, and we all made a little bit of money. Then Dennis Desmond came along uh, with Live Nation and, and bought it. And the idea at the time was I was supposed to be going with it. Then my old mate Randy Phillips got on the phone. Who can be very persuasive. I've known Randy forever. Well, he was still at AG, I assume. Yeah, he was at AG at that point. And, you know, and I said, oh, guess what? I'm going to the opposition. No, you're not, right? I'm oh, sorry, that's a very bad impersonation of Randy, if anyone knows it. <laughs> uh, no, you're not coming with me, right? Right? You know. So, anyway, cut a long story short. Randy persuaded me that we'd known each other at that point. This is 2004? three four we've known each other at that point since since the 80s since Duran days and everything else uh, when he managed Andy Taylor in America and I managed Andy Taylor in the rest of the world after we first left Duran so you guys had a working relationship yeah, you guys year. had to communicate constantly yeah for years so we've been friends since 1985 and so, everyone gets along with Randy the guy's a sweetheart yeah <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to libel myself um, <laughs> but we're, yeah, we're friends anyway, so he said look you know you know what we're a friend or a bunch of people you don't know so that was a compelling argument to me at the time. So I started AEG Live over here. You literally rolled it out. Yeah, that was me on my own in the office when we first started. We brought into Randy and built the business here. I'm quite proud that we built the business from zero to, I think, when I left 60 million EBITDA or something like that, which I'm very proud of. And it was a tremendous period. It was a great period. It was like the Wild West. We were reinventing the business between us and Live Nation. The whole business was being reinvented, global touring and doing major tour deals. And Randy and I were a good double act out there. And we managed to do tour deals with Alicia Keys and Justin Timberlake and and Usher, Randy and I managed together and we did the world tour and we became the co-managers of Usher. And well, at AEG? Yeah, well, we managed to carve that out until AEG okay. wasn't Usher's managers. Randy Phillips and Rob Hallett were. Okay, so, but simultaneously, you guys we were, were still, still at promoters AEG. at AEG yeah, and his managers. Yeah, and promoting the tour. Nice work if you can get it. That seems like that would work well. Yeah, it did work well. I mean... You know, it sounds conflicted, but when you're getting on with an artist and you're all pushing together in the same way, where's the conflict? It was all about Usher, you know. And because we were earning as promoters, we couldn't charge on everything as, as managers. So there's areas we couldn't charge in management commission. So he was getting. So you weren't double dipping. No, no, we weren't. So the artist actually wins. Yeah, so the artist actually wins. He gets his promoters totally focused on him because they're also his managers. And we we did other things. I mean, I love Usher. He's one of my favorite artists to this best day. Best of all resources. Yeah. And we're still, again, you know, most people, whether I work with them or not, I still end up staying friends because life's too short not to, you know. Uh, so Usher and I are still friends. We still talk on a fairly regular basis. Spoke to him last week. And it was a tremendous period. I knew that. And then, of course, the O2 opened. I was there two years before the O2 opened. Uh, and then we opened the O2. And Tim Lowecki you know, wanted to make a splash. He really wanted to say, you know, the O2s arrived in London. So he gave me a budget to go out and buy. And we, we bought Bon Jovi to open. We bought two nights at Rolling Stones. We bought two nights at Barbara Streisand, Andrea Pacelli. Because my concept was, I wanted everyone in London to come. 
in the first two, three weeks. Anyone who ever goes to events. So we got to make it. Yeah, we, so we had the Stones, we had Streisand, we had Andrea Pacelli, we had Bon Jovi. I'm sure that came cheap. Justin Timberlake. Because those guys totally yeah, like to be available on your timetable. Yeah, yeah, they're all friends. You know, they're all good. <laughs> <laughs> Cost of bloody fortune. But it put the thing on the map. And in fact, another career highlight happened at that point was to get, because the O2 is, is in Canary Wharf by the city, or the offices opposite it, the other side of the river. We wanted to get those dudes over. So came up with this idea about Bill Clinton. Let's do a breakfast with Bill Clinton, and he could do a speech and a, and a Q&A. So book Bill, and that was all. This easy. is right after he was president, right? This yeah. isn't current. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is 2004. When did they go to it? 2004, 2006? Sounds right. Something, something in there. Anyway, so we hired Bill. And yeah, Bill comes over, blah, blah, blah. And so I say to his people, okay, I guess you're going to want someone with gravitas to interview him, Jeremy Paxman, who does, is one of our news anchors here, or something like that, you know. And uh, they say, no, nah, we don't care. You know, whoever, just uh, send the CV over to, to us. We get the FBI to check it. If it clears, then fine. We don't care. So I said, okay. So hmm, it's interesting. Okay. I sent my CV, um, <laughs> and they accepted me. So I spent an hour and a half interviewing Bill Clinton well, on stage at the Indigo at the O2. I got to say, I would absolutely have done the exact same thing. Uh, it was, it I was don't know good. that I would have the balls to do it, but I would have wanted to. But the it. fact that you did it is awesome. I did it, and he was a nice man. He, he was very helpful. He didn't try and kill me, especially when I asked the question, of how did it feel when you were on top of the world, your approval ratings were through the roof as a politician doing your job? Job, and yet the whole world's media tried to bring you down over one incident with an intern and he sort of stopped for a second and he looked at me and he went you know what i looked in the mirror every day and i said bill you are the president of the united states of america and no one can take that away from you unless you let them and i got dressed did up my tie and went to my office which i thought was fantastic answer that's why i can remember it that's pretty much verbatim i can remember it you know which i thought was a great answer and a great life lesson really focus you know stay focused on on the goal don't let anything distract you from either side to stay focused he's a legitimate rock star on a rolling stones kind of level when you see him speak he's one of the most charismatic oh, he's, people uh, yeah. in the world on tv it's hard to get it yeah but when you're physically in his presence it's amazing he grabs your attention like only Mick Jagger or Paul McCartney or Daltrey could do. And he switches himself off in the same way as a rock star as well. Yeah, like a rock star comes on stage, hey, yeah, Louisiana, and Bill comes, hey, the Democrats, and then comes on stage. Yeah, it doesn't say a word, sort of, yeah, doesn't look at anyone, becomes a, almost grumpy. I mean, it's, it's a, he's got that whole kind of thing. Uh, yeah, and we've all seen rock stars, you know, on stage, off stage. Yeah, it's the same kind of thing. But anyway, enough of Bill. Hold on a second, though. When you interviewed him, obviously you prepped your questions. No, Did you yeah. have any time with him beforehand? No. To, no. So he's just so good and so he's used so to being good. interviewed I was shocked. that you did it cold. Yeah, and I, I mean, and I'm sure you were the most well-prepared you've ever been for any meeting yeah. in your life. But I, I was shocked they didn't it want the questions. It must have been nervous as hell, I Yeah, imagine. I was really nervous as hell. But and, this was at O2, right? This, yeah, is, this, this was at Indigo, not O2. So it's 2,000 people. Still, that's massive. Still me and Bill on stage on our own with 2,000 people. In a town where you live. Yeah, I've got photos of it on my phone. I can show you after we finish talking. Uh, I love this. This yeah, is great. So, I, I, I've never heard that story. Fascinated by that. Yeah, yeah, so that was fun. So the whole AEG, 10 years I spent at AEG was fun. I had had some great experiences. That was one. We opened the O2, and then everything went to the O2. Then, of course, 
was we had the 21 nights with prince which to this day still hasn't been beaten and i think was history making well it seems like it would have been beaten because you sold the tickets for jackson right well, we'll get to that all right we'll get to that uh didn't want to skip ahead my bad it's never been beaten and it probably never will be now because there's only one michael but anyway so prince comes and he says okay i'll do it i'll do the other two but i want to do 21 nights i said okay prince 21 nights in London, 16,000 people a night. No one's ever done that. You know, I think the biggest record at the time was Dire Straits had done 14 nights at Earl's Court in the heyday of Brothers in Arms. Prince had, was even past his heyday, you know. So, okay. Anyway, we're talking, saying, no, 21 nights. Is that the Prince, maybe we can squeeze seven. 21. Okay. I'll tell you what. How about this? We'll do 21 nights in London, but the last seven might be at the Jazz Cafe. But we can say you did 21 nights in London. So he said, so he just smiled the way he used to Rob Riley smile and say, okay, but well, it'll be at the old two Rob, you know, and sure enough, he was right. I think our marketing helped, but, uh, well, and it must've because he tried to replicate that in Los Angeles yeah. and it didn't work. And he wound up having to come in and self-produce some of those dates. If I remember this correctly, yeah. well, that's be a little I, fuzzy on the details. That's because I wasn't up. the promoter. Wasn't <laughs> obviously, <laughs> obviously. They, they, they put it up to be multiple weeks and it didn't sell as well as it was supposed to. Well, I mean, I don't know how well they thought it through, but we thought it through like uh, on a meticulous level. Like when we announced Prince agreed to give away his new album, which was Planet Earth at the time, with the Mail on Sunday, which is a newspaper here that reaches three and a half million homes. Each of them woke up on Sunday morning with a free Prince album on their door. Now, at that point, I mean, this is way past his, his hate. How many people woke up with a free Prince album? Three and a half million. That's fucking marketing. So, and there were, yeah, so say three and a half million average household, 2.2 kids and a wife. So you're reaching, you know, and then they share it with their friends. You're reaching a hell of a lot of people. And then we go on sale. And because seven was a magical number for Prince, I said to me, okay, let's do it in tranches of seven and let's get people excited, you know, and let's stop and relaunch, stop. And relaunch so we did three tranches of seven we are with the three and a half million things we got radio excited again and we got was it 21 nights in a row or were there dark they were, nights they were dark nights because he, yeah, he sings two two and a half hours a night right yeah yeah i know he worked and, and he did, didn't go for two hours afterwards and sing right because he does the late show after he right? was a miracle of modern science i don't know what how he did it but it was fantastic 21 i, I actually i saw 42 nights of prince in about two months because I had to be there at the show, the after show, you know, blah, blah, blah. You must have not got any work done during that time. No, I mean, what is? You know, you don't really need much else if you're doing 21 Nights of Prince with 16,000 people a night. You don't, but that's not how this industry works. No, I mean, I, I was... You were burning the candle on both ends? Yeah, you were. And it, I mean, the worst summer I ever had was when I had Bon Jovi, Justin Timberlake, and Justin Bieber all out in one summer, having to try and go around, you know, chasing them. That was a real nightmare. Prince had managed to happen because there was a couple of gaps and this and that. That was magical. Uh, other magical things at AEG tenure we did 16 nights of Bon Jovi at the O2 which was great you know the John and Dave and Tico become friends and it was just a pleasure hanging out with them because they're the boys you know they're just hanging out with the lads we had great fun together let's skip ahead a little bit what are you doing now what's keeping you busy on your day to day yeah day to day now God, so you don't want to talk about Michael good today I, left I do it's just we're, we're running short on time and I, I definitely want to know what you're going on I left now. AEG a couple of years ago and I started my own business called Robo Magic Robo Magic is a multifaceted business you know Live Nation have won the touring game and to really compete in that you know you, you need deep pockets a huge checkbook which you know sometimes you find a backer sometimes you don't I'm fully independent now so I'm focused on artists and artists 
services more and a couple of events i've managed to get a license for five years at um, fulham palace which is a country house in the middle of london on the river thames in fulham just by fulham football club i did an event there with Nile rogers last year called fold uh where we had nile chic beck uh, labyrinth angie stone on and on and i did a, another thing sort of more of a culture thing called caught by the river which is um art culture fishing novelists poets kind of very english very cool i'm doing more events there this year and i've got a couple more sites that i'm developing what's the capacity of that setup it's only five thousand so it's a nice family little thing you know so we do three nights so it's fifteen thousand over the weekend usually you're selling three-day passes yeah, yeah a exactly. lot of three-day passes yeah, yeah exactly right? exactly and the beauty of it is people like me who grew up on festivals love festivals but don't want to go to so it's a higher-end festival it's lifestyle yeah. stuff yeah and where you can get a cab home you know because where you can get what a cab home oh a cab home got yeah. it because it's, it's aimed at Londoners but it's only 5,000 a day for three days there's enough people in London to cover it so you can go there get drunk do whatever you want and get a cab home and come back and do it all again the next day. How far out of the city is it? It's in the city. It's Fulham, just over there. <laughs> it's right next to Fulham Football Club. It's in the city. It's, it's, it's a tube station, two-minute walk. Okay. I mean, it's in the city. It's on the uh, district line. Got it. So that's kind of cool. I've also been doing a bit of consulting. I got hired by Time Inc. Uh, I produced a festival for them in Durban. I, I produced the Essence Festival for them in Durban, the one that they do in, in New Orleans. So we had a contemporary night where we brought Neo over from America, Wizkid from Nigeria, Burner Boy from Nigeria, and we had a bunch of um, South African acts like Casper Neuvest and AKA and Black Coffee. And then we had a gospel day the next day where we had Mary Mary and, and uh, Blazes Blacksmith and Bars. I'm doing that again this year. I also have been hired by the Jamaican government because of my reggae roots to celebrate Usain Bolt's uh, last competitive races that he's running in London in August where he's going to do a transition from being an athlete into an entertainer. So we're doing a bunch of Jamaican culture events and, and stuff uh, over at the O2. I've just done a deal with Bill Diggins for my sins to become the co-manager of TLC internationally. With, uh, oh, wow. Big plans to roll them out again. New album sounds fab. Uh, it's new it's interesting coming. that they've decided to work again, obviously being one person down. Yeah, but they're, you know, I mean, what, what do you do? Working for Tribe Called Quest, though. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, and what do you do? I mean, if you're um, Chile and T-Boz, do you have to give up your life because your colleagues sadly lost theirs? No, I mean, clearly they have the right to work, and exactly. they were those artists that wrote those songs. They're, they, exactly. And the fans clearly have the demand to want to see them. Exactly. And it's the new just... album is actually relevant and good. And they waited an appropriate amount of time. It's not like no. it's not like they were the Who, where the so you know, and Whistle died one day, and three um, days later they were back on the road. Yeah, exactly. No, no, it's, uh, it's, it's Th ten that years. might that might have been a little bit short. -sighted. It's ten years. It's ten years. Yeah, you know. there, there, there's certainly a difference there. We just tested it in Australia and, and headlined an arena tour down there and sold out arenas across the country. So, and the new records testing well. So I'm kind of I'm quite excited by that. I've been approached by Goldie to put him together with uh, an orchestra. To, uh, to do adult dance music whereas you know, like a full symphony yeah but with two drummers percussionists they're doing the dance plus strings over the top so for people EDM the, goes adult I well, love not, that it's before EDM yeah, it's, it's basically, the original dance yeah, music yeah drum and bass go, yeah, go, yeah. goes adult so basically if you like Goldie in the first place you know, you're now in your 40s and 50s you still don't like guitar music because that, that's why you like Goldie in the first place 
But you don't. This... He kind of disappeared for a while, and then yeah. it seems like a proper time for him to come back. Yeah, exactly. And EDM is like you know, it's for kids. You know? and so for people that like dance music in their forties, blah blah blah. This is a, a show. We put six shows on at Ronnie Scott's a couple of weeks ago, and they sold out in five minutes. And the crowd was, as I thought, so the demand is predominantly there. male, forty to fifty, who sit there. But loving. they're sitting. They're, yeah. they're, they're not dancing. No, they were sitting because you can't you can't stand there. Right, exactly. That's and awesome. But, but, but for the last two songs, he, he revved it up a bit, and they got up. So I'm doing that I've been working with Will I Am we did a couple of shows at the Royal Albert Hall just over there to launch his watch his talking watch thing that he, he launched we did that we're talking about some touring down the road um, I'm just enjoying kind of being a gun for hire you get your hands in a lot of pots it seems yeah, you're I'm a busy up, man I'm, yeah I'm picking up projects here and there I've probably forgotten a couple if anyone's listening and I'm, I haven't mentioned the project of yours that I'm working on I'm sorry but I am working on it I promise <laughs> you know you've got to reinvent yourself in this business you know and the landscape's changed from, from when I was, you know, when I started. It's changed several times over the years. I don't have a hundred million to pay artists for advances like uh, Live Nation do. I'm, you know, having to find other way. There's no way I'm leaving this business until they carry me out in a coffin. So I'm going to be here making a noise as much as I can for the rest of my life. And had you given a second thought when Sex Pistols had fired you two weeks in, a whole mm. different career in music industry would nah. be uh, greatly devastated on, on how it turned out. No, nah, I never doubted for a second that I'd succeed. Amazing. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I would love to make this an annual thing where you come back and talk to us next year when we're here. <laughs> Absolutely. Incredible. I feel like we're just scratching the surface. I'd love to you. listen again and so I don't repeat myself. But yeah, there's a few stories I haven't told. Thank you so much. All right. Welcome. Appreciate it. See ya. The guy has done it all. Way too cool. Love, Rob. Hey, it's Mark David, Steve Strange, Toby Layton Pipe, Stuart Galbraith, Simeon Galperin, I'm Ralph James, Ted Cohen, Julia Frank, Jeff Goodman, Jamie Adler, and Frank Wing, Doug Edley, David Klein, Stephen Riff, Tom Chauncey, and, and we're, we're on, on Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101. For our second interview this week, we caught up with rock and roll royalty from the DKD Dynasty and reigning Ticketmaster Canada Big Cheese, Patty Ann Tarleton. Dan and I sat down with Patty at CMW in Toronto, Canada. Promoter 101, we're here in Toronto, Canada at Canadian Music Week. We're joined today by our first ever Ticketmaster executive, the lovely Patty Ann Tarlington. Patty, welcome to Promoter 101. Thanks for having me. How are things going for you at Canadian Music Week? It's good. It's the beginning of the week. Lots in the door. We're all on back-to-backs during the day and showcases at night and a little bit of uh, sporting going on, too, with the playoff buzz. Absolutely. Yeah, you guys seem to care about basketball right now. I yeah, think we the do. Talkie. We're on bandwagon, but it's we got cool. hockey, too. Big game on uh, Monday night. So you guys Hope haven't forsaken will. it. No. Not and the National Sports still across, right? Yes, it is. That confuses the shit it out of should, me. It should, I know. Are there little pull across teams that Ticketmaster's making money with across Canada? Yeah, and there's also uh, rugby coming in too this year. Okay, see, I see that selling. That's like pro wrestling meets football. I get that. <laughs> and rugby sells well across the country. And then we also, let's not forget, we're uh, getting more and more uh, multicultural, right? And so we're bringing lots of different interests, which, of course, you know, maybe leans on our hockey interests, but certainly it's everything for everyone. And Canadian hockey extends well beyond Canadian borders to half the Chicago. Blackhawks, the, the reigning Stanley Cup champions, are Canadians. Go Canada, go. Yeah, absolutely. So you guys are deep into our histories. Like when it comes to the concert world, Canada is kind of controlling the game. It's the mistress to the rest of us being the subs at this point. I might have grown up under, underneath <laughs> that. <laughs> so your family history is deep in the business. Yeah first concert I remember going to because I know I managed to get to a bunch of them uh, well before I was old enough to talk but uh, April Wine with Heart opening in uh, Victoria, BC 
sat on the uh, Lighting Council. Was April Wine that much bigger of an act in Canada that they were having Heart open, or was it early for Heart? It was early for, I'm aging myself, but it certainly was early for Heart, and April Wine was massive for us as well. Yeah, they were much bigger in Canada than they ever were in the States, uh, right? Well, that was Donald. <laughs> Donald, of course, your uncle, Donald Tarlington, right? Indeed, yeah. Yeah. DKD. DKD. And that was obviously a, a legendary promoter in Montreal where you grew up, but you quickly moved to Vancouver and then back to Montreal, right? Indeed. So I, I kind of say I'm uh, as Canadian as it comes, born in Montreal, Montreal parents moved around a bit, got to BC before I was in school, actually. Grew up in Vancouver, went to Quebec City after high school to learn French because I wanted to go and work for Uncle Deke and decided to stay really and that went to McGill worked throughout we got into some you know exciting times in the Maritimes too because when really at that point Donald and Michael had shook hands and said let's be partners across the country and so each of them took their own city and then they partnered throughout and of course there's other partners as you go west as well with uh, Periscope out west with Norman Perry in the days and your interest is really peaked in your early years with DKD as being on the accounting and, and tour side what drew you to the numbers in the early days before it was really you know Brian Nix was Donald's uh, original bookie, actually, but uh, turned accountant. <laughs> and so he did everything on paper, and I was, you know, coming through saying, you know what, we could do this a lot faster. We just computerized it, and he, you know, he said, uh, BS, I, you know, I can do it faster. I got it in my head. And so would also try to just shadow him, and, you know, the goal was to prove out, like, do it faster. And I, by the time you could do it faster is when you get to do it on your own. So it was really about finding a niche. Uh, you know, Donald's got a big shadow, learned a lot, answered the phones for him in the early days, answered the phones for Riley O'Connor in the early days, but... Uh, you know, looking to do your own thing too. And it, it got me out, got me to understand the business. Having that name attached to yours, does that add pressure to living up to a certain level of expertise just right off the bat? Absolutely. And Donald is a massive personality. And so, you know, you don't want to live in a shadow. You want to have your own identity. And you know, certainly as I'm 14 years old and Donald says to Riley, and I'm in Vancouver at the time, hey, I have my niece is going to come knock on your door, you know, give her a job. And Riley looks at me like, what the fuck, right? And uh, I don't need a 14 year old kid. But then he says, okay, fine. Be my receptionist for the summer. And you do that. At 14. You <laughs> were on Riley's at, desk at 14. At 14. Yeah. yeah, you learn not to cry. Wow. Early in the game. <laughs> do not cry. And keep the was on long distance mattered, right? So right. you got to keep the guy that's calling in and agents calling in and saying, I want to talk to him. And Riley's on the phone talking away. And I'm saying, you know, hey, how can I keep you on the phone? Because <laughs> if I hang up with you, he's going to yell and say, what the fuck? Why isn't he on the phone still, right? And so <laughs> who wants to call back? It gets you engaged early in the game. Amazing. Wow. What were those early days like? Any crazy stories you can share from DKD days? Well, yeah, uh, you know, I was able in the early days of the stadium tours with AGNR in, in around that, the riots of uh, of the GNR days, the new kids on the block, the heist at gunpoint of poor Serge Grimo, who Whoa, what's I love this about? today. He was doing merch and it, it was the morning after, if I remember correctly. And, it, you know, guys came in in a bell truck, like a, you know, telecom truck. So they're waved in because it's the next day and you figure they're just taking out the wires, et cetera. And so they came up, knew exactly where the merch cash was being kept. Counted and uh, Serge was in the wrong spot at the right time. Wow. Sounds like an inside job. They knew exactly where the merch money was counted. That's hard to say. And they never got found. They found the van at the private airport departure and never. And they literally skipped town. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Montreal was fun days. It's amazing. <laughs> it is. I Makes can you still think hear that cry. We're in the wrong side. We start heisting merch booths. It's all electronic cash now, though. <laughs> yeah. 
Let's talk about your days in the arena, because that's quite two different hats you wound up wearing. I mean, you've worn a bunch of hats in the industry, but you ran the arena here for some time. Indeed, and moved over from what was, I guess, then called House of Blues, uh, now Live Nation. Six months after the Arcana Center was was open, and really sports-driven organization, I jump in as an industry music person, and took a few years to get, you know, you're not just the afterthought, or hey, we're entitled to this touring traffic, we've got a nice arena, and you should just, you know, why aren't they all coming? Canada in general or Toronto? Well, yeah, that's interesting you say it that way because it was the days that currency exchange was a real deficit. We had kind of like today. Uh, kind of like today. Yeah, absolutely. And so you look at that expense line, then you've got SOCAN, you've got taxes. And so there was a push there. And then not to mention, let's not kid ourselves, from a Canadian perspective, a lot of these deals are done. They just look on paper, right? And so they don't know what the arena looks like or stadium. What is now the Rogers Centre Sky Dome then? You know, had a P&L that could look like an arena, right? And yeah. so, you know, really try to set up the organization to A, be welcoming to the entertainment industry. And we've run the traffic. And last year, they had the biggest year of all time. And uh, the team that's there is uh, really engaged in the entertainment business. It's the staple center of Toronto. It so, seems like it, it, it oversees yeah. all of the arenas throughout yeah, Canada. And, you know, there's a flavor there too, because t- Tim would have spent a, a few years at MLSE as well, right? As right. In kickstarting yet again, another push to be really engaged in the music business. Hey, it's much bigger than the staple center of Toronto. It's, a, it's one of the most highly trafficked venues in North America. But it's yeah. the gold standard for sure. Indeed. I imagine our friends in New York, Randy would probably prefer we say it's the MSG of Canada, but I'm sure. <laughs> or on the Eastern time. It all depends after all. on if you're talking to Billboard or Porsche. <laughs> <laughs> Not that we're sucking up to anybody in particular this week. No. So, you know, you, you spent time with Maple Leaf Sports and, and everybody over there, and you had some awesome acts and some awesome, you know, sporting events come through the Air Canada Center in your time there. But then you make the transition to Ticketmaster. And what was that phone call like? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I never envisioned, uh, you know, the journey, right? Even from concert promoter to venue operator. Didn't see it coming, but maybe it was a little bit of, hey, I've been doing a bunch of road travel. Maybe this is an opportunity to you know engage in a different way from the TM side of things and I benefited by moving around the table right just the context of the other parts of the industry was helpful in the arena setting and building out venues you know was helpful in generating more traffic because you know what the promoters are looking for when they come through the artists are looking for when they come through and then from the ticketing perspective Jared Smith was the head of, of TM North America at the time and and I was still at the at the building pushing him along the way going hey lots of changes in leadership lots of development happening at Ticketmaster. I see south of the border as I go to conferences except what's going on in Canada, right? Well, give me a minute, PA. Just give me a minute. I got I to figure this out. That's the answer for Canada. Yeah. Give yeah. us a minute. Just we'll give get back minute, to you. Right? And so I think over time, there was just a little bit of like, listen, if you got all the answers, why don't you come do it? Or me saying, listen, you haven't figured it out yet. Let me come do it. So, you know, we kind of go back and forth on which one came first in that regard. But, you know, the stars lined up and uh, it's been a great ride. The engagement from a TM Canada perspective is really what I came back to do. In the early, early days, of course, you're talking to your ticket company about all the things they see, you know, what's your sense? What do you think things are going to sell? What is the right pricing, et cetera? And that consultation was really part of back in the days as a, as a concert promoter, you really looked at your local contact as a partner in helping you make your decisions, right? And it had gotten a bit quiet over the decade before. So was really looking to, to re-engage a team and got a real exciting team. It's been fun growing it up. And you've been an incredible advocate for artists and fans alone here in Canada, working a lot with Canadian government 
to combat scalpers and ticketing bots up here. You've been an amazing advocate for government-funded or publicly-funded arts here, you know, testifying several times on behalf of artists. Let's give the other side. Let's talk about when she's a bitch. <laughs> That's at home. <laughs> talk to the girls. We don't hear those stories as much. But they got to be there, right? I mean, it's got to exist. There's only so many hours in a day to be uh, smiling, right? <laughs> in your role as advocate, how is all of your experience from concert promoter mm-hmm. to venue operator to CEO of Ticketmaster, how has that helped you create a platform for advocacy? You know, it's perspective. It's always perspective. And so, you know, I think a lot of times when we engage, conversation starts with what you're doing right now. And so if you can just broaden that perspective to be able to talk on behalf of, and I think having grown up outside of Toronto and saying I would never live in Toronto and 20 years later, I'm here, right? And so there's a responsibility that comes, I think, with being in that hub to speak on behalf of Canada. And I, you know, that's what's really I've gotten a kick out of is representing, be it in a North American setting, representing what we can do up here in Canada. We always pride ourselves in being able to punch in above our weight class and export that we can accomplish up here. And so there's great stories to tell at the government level and media alike, right? But it's also up to public awareness challenge in that if I just come at it from, hey, you're the head of Ticketmaster, all of the myths that exist is what you first got to get through. So if you can try to make it a bit more personal, then uh, it's not one big corporation. It's interesting how you pointed out because in the American sense, Canada and America are kind of the same thing in our world. We're another state. Well, yeah, kind of. And when you're dealing with touring and routing, you think of it the same way because you jump back and forth across the border. It's not a big deal. You promote in one, you promote in the other. If you work in one, you work in the other. It's not like jumping continents by any chance. And I think if you look at it from Europe's point of view, we're the same thing because once they jump over the pond, they're playing both once they're here. I mean, they may only do one or two markets in Canada, and especially now that the dollar is so weak up here compared to the U.S. dollar. And clearly that's got to affect the volume of shows when the dollar is down like it is because when you guys were at 0.9 to our one or even at 1.1.1 yeah. to one you know it's got to affect how many markets are getting played with x that's right and how deep an artist will go when they're at the top of their career as well right it's yeah. really got to affect regina's like volume Second, shows medicine like, hatton moose jar yeah, in the maritime provinces you know they often it stops in quebec right when the economics don't work you know we've done because you're playing toronto one way or yeah. another you're probably yeah. playing montreal you're playing vancouver and you can pop up from the states when you do that Right. And so, you know, really it's it's to try to keep that national perspective. And that's really, you know, when you go back to the, the CPI and DKD and, and Periscope and Night Out in the middle and Ottawa had uh, Basecliff, et cetera, you had a mechanism to tour across Canada. And, and so there is still that effort. Live Nation does it, AEG does it. There's independents here across the country that are taking shows across, and it's in their interest to do that, right? Because they that's, uh, that's the only way you can make a living in Canada is to actually... Who are the big the independents now that Union has fallen? Well, you still have Embrace here in, out of Toronto. You've got Inc., you've got Palmer's. Obviously, the guys from Eventco don't come down. They stay in their markets. Eventco actually has grown into the what was DKD's territory uh, back in the day, right? So you've got Quebec and the Maritimes is really their primary focus. They'll take French content across if they can, uh, and they're always having ambitions to you know to grow from there. You know they have a great platform of festivals and theaters. They're essentially I, I talk about them as being the Live Nation of Quebec, right? Because they've got everything from the festival, the arenas, the clubs. The touring, yeah, they, the, those guys they, own their markets the way JMU's don't Chicago. Yeah. 
Okay, so Ticketmaster up here is a very solid brand. I, I don't see 900 different ticket companies up here. I know some of them have come into the market, but it's not the same thing like 900 ticketing companies that are trying to break London and trying to break the states right now. Right, but I think there's also you know primary versus secondary, and then there's just other ways to distribute digital tickets today. And so you know we really don't look at any one independent company as the competition. We look at what is the new way to distribute is you know be it any e-commerce platform platform that exists today can become a you know a distribution of tickets the challenge of course is the mechanics of the primary side and so yes we absolutely you know have great relationships you know when you think about there's a dozen big buildings in Canada right so you know that's your stable and then there's the you know festival platform club platforms do it yourself as well there's stretching out beyond our platinum NHL type clients CFL stadiums which even those organizations often grow out in Vanco is a good example of you know they're way way beyond just a you know a, a hockey team owner and an NHL venue owner helps when you got really good beer money flowing there through you, you. okay so the technology certainly moved into the next generation you guys are on the forefront of combating bots and bots I think unilaterally is what unites the industry and in that who would say they don't want to fight against bots and there's where advocacy to your point earlier about uh, with government legislation alone and you have a federal legislation in in America which gets looked at from our Canadian provincial level if there's no enforcement it's worth nothing. But if there's, a, you know, at least if there's that kind of a law on the books, then you can do things without fear of class action suits against you. And so, you know, when you think about, we can talk about technology, our verified fan technology, which is really the pre-registration on pre-sales. Which only takes a second, which is amazing. Right. It's just and like, are you a real person? That's right. And so even some bots will get through that. And then we just can take the opportunity to cancel those tickets without fear. If there's a legislation that protects against that, right, that says bots right. are illegal, you could then cancel those tickets and then refresh the list and give it back, to, you know, the opportunity to the fans. Now, does the technology exist if the show's not selling great off the break that we don't cancel those tickets? We can let the, keep the money and let the, the scalpers get stuck with them? question was, was who's going to argue against bots? <laughs> and it's the promoter in the room right now. Trying <laughs> try to take Take risk out of the deal. Yeah. If the sure. show didn't break, well, I'm 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 loving the buy. Someone else has yeah. offset some risk for me. Yeah. Right? Well, I think we're all happy when the scalpers lose, right? Well, what's so the difference? Win. The real question is, what's the scalper anyways today? I imagine it's a kid in a dorm room that's smart enough to trade futures by buying enough tickets of a hit back by buying 30 tickets on his credit card. And so some of those guys are in the ecosystem, right? Some of those you do want to have relationships with because they've offset some risk for you, right? And so the bots would really just be about uh, taking a rule that says you've circumvented the rule set out by a promoter, an artist, a venue, right? Say it's the ticket limit, four tickets, for example. And so the idea of saying that they've used technology to circumvent the rule that were set out, you may not set a rule, right? And yours like, hey, you know what? You want to buy 100 tickets? You want to buy 1,000 tickets? Fill your boots. I read an article about, speaking about the Verified Fan Program, where, you know, you, there was a concert goer here in Toronto that had gone to 100-something concerts in a year, and he wrote into uh, somebody after his ticket was canceled, and you got an email from a journalist here in Toronto, and you emailed back within five minutes reinstating his ticket. How do you, at that level, maintain everything you have to do on a daily basis and be able to field opportunities like that when they come across your desk? You know, how do you keep all the plates spinning? I mean, that's a good question. And, you know, some of that is, uh, you know, you're constantly connected, right? And so, you know, you, you could receive that on your phone and you've got to at least respond to say, hey, I caught that and I'll follow up. And so early in my tenure here at, at TM, I will have had a few of those. And then, you know, really you're, you're, you're putting trust in the hands of, you know, the media that brought that to you. Because in that example, you know, a few years prior, they wouldn't have bothered reaching out because they didn't expect to get a response. 
And then it would just have been some article that you had to go and defend later, right? Sure. You look like you're back on your heels. So it's important to me to actually, again, to a speed of response, and that's your promoter world, that's your venue world. It's it's coming from other areas of the industry. We work 24-7, and there's a level of expectation that you right. respond to. That's incredible. It has kind of changed. There used to be a pace where you wouldn't have to respond to necessarily everyone quickly, and I, I think it's still pick and choose, but there's a certain level of professional courtesy that if someone real contacts you on a Sunday afternoon, you respond within an hour now. And certainly your friends, you pick up the phone and call, but like if there's a problem and somebody hits you on a Sunday afternoon nobody's expecting you to wait till monday to hit them back that's it's an industry shift that's changed in the last 15 years with technology absolutely and my biggest pet peeve is that we don't have wi-fi in our airplanes on the wide body of long haul yeah. flights to la <laughs> i do want to touch on something here too you're one of two women to sit on the board of directors for caris for the canadian recording society so you know in your role as a high profile executive here you know bringing to the forefront female leadership in the music industry in Canada. That's another platform for advocacy for you. And what has it been like? Yeah, interesting, because I will have grown up through the career not paying attention to gender, right? I don't walk into a room and count left or right or up or down. And so it only has been in the last few years that, you know, I guess there is a responsibility to address that. So, I mean, it's maybe my opinion that girls coming up shouldn't, I'm I'm 30 years in, 35 years in, whatever it is, long time. And I never saw gender in a room, so why should anyone else? Because there's nothing that you back. But at the same time, I, I know there's mentorships and, you know, I had great mentors all the way through my life and career. And so I'm optimistic that that will continue. Um, the interesting part of, you know, suggesting there's not too many women on those board positions, et cetera, et cetera. It actually ends up feeding itself as well. Cause you know, I'm on a music, Toronto music advisory board and there's a, you know, the front page on the commuter rag that's, it's all about, there's not enough women in these boards. So after that, airs on the front page of that metro, then you get five calls, can you be on my board? It's like, well, that's not really the point. <laughs> you know, you should maybe... Same one woman the- <laughs> on every board. There's you two know. of you. <laughs> <laughs> and can you be on everything, right? So there's, you know, diversity is important, but it also, we need to spread the wealth around as well. It is a little interesting because just by the sheer number across the industry, there's more men in the business. So there's going to be more men represented on things like that. And none of that offends me, right? But yeah, it's in general, but it shouldn't be more than two women voices across the industry. In Nashville, Allie is a big voice because she's the most standout name. So she's everywhere. And I think she'd be the first person to say, spread it out a little bit. Yeah. Like, I'm happy to do some of this, but some of the other sisters can carry some water here. Sally can pick up the, you know. Well, yeah, but then that would be the other one. Sally and Allie are the big names in Nashville. But there's like another couple hundred women in that business making real dent into the industry as far as the country music scene. There's like, there are more names. It's like, look a little deeper. I agree. And then I think that's where I can play a, a hand in trying to promote the engagement of the women in the industry. Absolutely. Where's ticketing going? What's the next step? Clearly, technology is moving to a new pace. I would say it's all about digital ticketing. I would say identity-based access, meaning, you know, the move away from a barcode, which is anonymous, and you don't know who you know who bought one guy, maybe bought four tickets, but you don't know the other three people that are actually going. You don't even know if that guy went in if you're using a barcode, right? So I think the identity-based access, like you would with a airline ticket, would be the way that the industry then could curate the experience once they get in better. It can't be friction and you can't be big brother, but certainly that's the next frontier as far as, you know, curating a great 
fan engagement when you're inside any festival site, any arena, any club. Isn't there a part of this as a ticketing company where once you sell the ticket, the product's off your shelf and you don't have to worry about it anymore? It's like, it seems like a lot of babysitting once the product's gone out the door. And I think that's in perpetuity. I think that is what we are. Sure, we're the technology that's used to, to connect the fan with their artist or their team or the event that they love. But we're so part of the industry that the customer experience is as important to us as it is to the person that's live there, right? And when you have people showing up because they've got fraudulent tickets and they're crying at the front door, they're calling us, they're calling the venue, and and maybe they're calling an artist to say, hey, I didn't get to see your event. We know you have to go, but we want to thank you so much for taking the time and talking to us. So great to see you. Thanks for coming to Canada. See you again soon. Promoter 101 at Canadian Music Week. Patty Ann is a bad ass. I have nothing but love for her. This is Tom Chauncey, Partisan Arts. This is Promoter 101. Coming up next, from Beck to Manilow, Sasha Bambaji keeps the biggest stars in the world on stage. Promoter 101, we're at South by Southwest, and we're real treat today. Good friend, Sasha, thank you for uh, taking the time away from your busy South by Southwest to join us. Well, I uh, want to thank you for uh, recognizing that I'm here this week and uh, inviting me up to your studio here and uh, to celebrate with you in our first inaugural beers of uh, of the conference is this your first too we'll consider it my first, first. of the day first of the day right. <laughs> i've been here for a couple of days you uh, just got here fair. I mean, that would have been really impressive right. so who are you here with this week really exciting week this week here i've actually here kind of with a couple acts the main act i'm here with is uh the great band spoon who i've been privileged to work with for the past couple weeks as they are uh, launching a new promo and album cycle with a new album that actually comes out friday called hot thoughts which I have to admit, I've quickly become a fan of the band and gained a lot of knowledge of. And uh, not only are they some of the most talented guys I've ever worked with or gotten to hear, they are some of the nicest as well, which always makes it a pleasure. I uh, saw them the first time opening for Death Cab for Cutie years ago. And man, they've got it. Yeah, Britt Daniel, who's up front there, is really again not only one of the nicest guys in the business but uh, just a, a true talent which has been seen with some other bands he's been in and played along with but uh, really shining here this week in austin which happens to be uh, the band's home base so it's a pretty exciting week they've got a three-night residency at the old emos club which we're now calling enos after the drummer and one of the main members of the band jim eno at a venue now officially called the main but uh, we're referring to it as enos I love uh, the punk rock vibe that you get when you walk into emos. It's like you feel like no effects or Pennywise should be on stage when you're there. And that's the true essence of like what South By is all about. Yeah, it's still that dirty old backyard patio, which is not only like South By famous, but Austin famous in general. Kind of that Austin vibe, be it at like a stubs in the back or uh, at the at the old emos. Um, I think there's some of the original punk rock stickers over the trough style dirty urinals in the men's room. Which I don't know gives it kind of gives it its charm and, and the a dirty, unique dusty flavor. Bit. Oh yeah, so it's, it's still like still stuck in my nose from last kind night. Of yeah, exactly. Excellent. So your name is synonymous with Barry Manilow's camp. You were his guy forever and still do some day to day with him, right? When he goes out. Yeah, I'm. I've been really, really lucky. About 15 years ago, I had the opportunity to 15, 16 years ago. Wow. Now, I had the opportunity to kind of launch on one of my first major tours, actually to come in for Barry as his, as a tour carpenter. And uh, a few years later was asked to come and start as his production manager as he started a residency in Las Vegas. I think it was 2005. We started what ended up being, was supposed to be a one year run, ended up being a seven year run in Las Vegas. And since then, since we've left Vegas 
and continued to do shows because I got to tell you, he's probably one of the most hardest working guys in the business and dedicated. Um, since then, we've just done some amazing, amazing stuff. I mean, things I could never have dreamed of and gigs I could have never imagined I'd be able to play. Now you say my name's synonymous with him, but I just want to add synonymous, I think, amongst our ranks and, and our friends and our industry colleagues. I think I've- Well, I've anybody that's to... done a Barry Manilow show in the last decade and a half yeah. immediately thinks you're the guy that's going to be on the phone advancing that show yeah. with them. So, I mean, that that's, that's a pretty strong thing because Barry doesn't do 12 shows a year. Yeah, no, Barry amazingly does an insane amount of shows a year. I mean, just, I think in just the past, since 2011, since I became his production manager, I think we did over 500 shows in Vegas alone, and probably another 400 outside of Vegas, not counting appearances, TV specials, promo events. The guy works so hard and, and all the time. I remember when I first started with Barry as a carpenter, I worked under a great production manager who I learned a lot from. And and I, I asked him, I said, what's so great about working for Barry Manilow? I mean, aside from the fact that he's a genius. And he said, man, the guy works. If he signs up for a five-month tour, it ends up being a nine-month tour. And in 2005, I signed up for one year in Vegas, and we literally haven't stopped since. Seventh show added by overwhelming demand. So how do you jump from the AC world of Barry Manilow to the fast-paced world of fucking back yeah so the diversity in the artists i've been able to work with over the past few years i mean even prior to barry and some of the and some of the gaps you know and breaks that barry's taken which I mean, is really where... i i own a mandy album i, yeah. I won't lie I, i'll get down I, with l- some mandy. listen we had drinks you your father myself at the las vegas hilton i remember we, we like, i'll get we, down we, with yeah. some mandy there's yeah. no problem with that yeah. but I, i'm thinking devil's haircut yeah. way up here like i got two turntables you yeah. know i'm ready so, to rock so here's the irony of it all again very lucky to work in it all but the real fast-paced world and the high level operating world is actually in the barry manilow world believe it or not you take the tempo of, of his hits and you think that that's the more chill vibe camp so to speak but Barry, and I, I'm not trying to make this all about Barry and, 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 and putting him on a pedestal as much as he deserves to be, we operate at a level that in that camp that is just way above the rest. Our expectations of our partners and promoters in the producers we work with for specials, in the TV appearances we make, we, you know, the benefits we play, we operate at a level that is completely different. And we do that because that's what our artist does. He would never, ever, he'd sooner cancel a gig than phone it in and not be able to give it 100%. That's where we run around. And I'm sure the majority of the people that were, you know, of your listeners know a lot about Barry and what he's done. But until you really see him, you don't realize that he's not just, uh, you know, a guy that's been around for a long time that sits at a piano and plays. I mean, this guy runs around the stage. He jumps on top of the piano. He's dancing with his background singers and on a 80 foot wide stage is literally running from wing to wing in these arenas and he works man he works and and he expects us all to do the same thing and we expect that of ourselves versus uh an amazing talent with with, uh with beck it's a little bit smaller of a camp because we're not doing quite as many arenas and things like that but uh the music pumps you up it's a little different the main difference for me is i can wear jeans and a t-shirt when i'm working during a beck show and during the, the manilow shows the manilow mafia comes out in our black suits well, clearly Beck has had a very different path, and but legitimately has been a rock star now for going on 25 years. Yeah, you, you kind of forget what a legend he is himself. You know, I really see that when we are at shows, be it a Beck show or some other special or event, and the way that people just flock to him 
and by people I mean his, his peers and different celebrities who just come out of the woodwork and and just adore him. Did you and forget how many hits he has? But going all the way back to yeah. Loser, it's just like yeah. There's just a ton of them. Yeah, and you compare that to some of the com- the contemporary stuff he's done or the different albums he's done, and I mean, there's not an album that sounds like like the previous one or like the next one. They're all different and all different genres, and I, I like to say he gets away with it, so to speak, but re- really he just has the talent to do something that sounds like a crazy hip-hop sound to almost like an electronica sound to some beautiful ballads. So you jump from Beck, now you're with Spoon. Yeah, I mean, you know, in between these artists... We all have to work, but I've been able to align with a team that's kind of plugged me in to fill in with some some different artists and, and some different windows when they need it, um, just to give a little extra production support. Uh, Spoon this week and next. Um, we also I've also been able to work with really what a band that's been one of my favorite bands years now before I was actually even really touring extensively, and that's Jimmy Eat World. And, Jew. Uh, yeah, Jew for short. I'll tell you a funny story about that, actually. I remember booking them at the Mercury Cafe yeah. 25 years yeah. ago, opening for Blink-182. Exactly, yeah. They're so great. And they, too, just uh, released a new album towards the end of last, middle end of last year. And it's another damn good album and another like really great group of guys. It's a high-energy show, too. Yeah, those guys, another band. Like, you know, all four of their principal members, Jim Atkins up front. Like, those guys just rock every night, and I've, I'll never get bored of watching them. Or their fans. Their fans are rad, man. They, Especially when it's their show, you know, and coming to a different town, seeing these, like, multi-generational fans, like, singing and rocking to them. That's, you know, that's a reward as a production manager when you peek out there and see see the, the fruits of your labor. Now, we've had... We've gotten very lucky on the podcast early on. Stuart Ross... Jim Rungi, David Klein have all graced us with their presence, which is certainly the elk of guys that you're also in the industry with. Let's take a moment and talk about what your job is, because in the early days when you're in a van with a band, it's babysitting. But you're working with artists where you're not a handler. You're dealing with real business. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny, Dan, if we had kind of pre-proed this podcast, I would, I would, and you would have said like, what do you want to talk about or whatever? I mean, you practically just led me into it right there. And that's what, You're welcome. <laughs> like really what, what my role is as a production manager or tour manager and road manager. And I think if I sat around with the greats of the amazing man in the suit, Jim Rungi, who's just like become this amazing being, I think mainly from just being an all around great guy and from some of the other, some of our other peers that we always talk about. I think that like the main buzzword is safety. And I think that like, that's what our role is. And it's not just in the literal sense of like, make sure they don't trip over a pothole or crack or fall off the front of the stage. It's really just, you know, they're, our artist's jobs are just to go out there and, and perform every night and give it their all. And the rest they leave to a team of people, some of whom they barely know. You know, I you know, I could come in as a new production manager into a, an arena tour and I'm, you know, left to be in charge of essentially what's a multi million dollar operation. So it's and making... a very big brand in most cases. Yeah. And I, I want to clarify I said brand and not band, although in both cases they've kind yeah. of aligned. Yeah. Because you know, so, these are very big businesses. Yeah. They are very big businesses. So there's the business aspect. You know, we've production managers and tour managers have company credit cards and sometimes insane amounts of cash that we deal with as do you and your business and when you you deal with these artists that fly in drive in whatever show up at a gig get pumped up ready to do a show and you know walk on stage give it their all then walk out and in the meantime you're dealing with their money their liability their reputation their physical and mental safety and health those of all the people that are that work for them as well so 
keeping all of that safe and intact, that's my job. Making an artist feel safe, making an artist know that he's not going to get booed on stage because some of these great guys still don't have after 25 years, 30 years, 40 years. And I'm not talking about Barry or Beck or any of these others specifically, but man, it still takes a lot of balls to go out there every night. You know, you put out here on your podcast and some of these panels you host from country to country now, you international man of panels. Simply you jest. But really, we were talking about, before we got on air here, we were talking about Springsteen in Italy in front of 155,000 people. I mean, I'm not getting on fucking stage in front of 155,000 people. I mean, not without my knees shaking a little bit. I don't care how many times I've done it. So, you know, giving those guys the confidence, making them feel safe and that they're doing the right thing and there's a good reason for it is, is what's important. Yeah, it does take a bit of a polished act and a set of balls seen on stage. I got to imagine even Springsteen himself oh. showing a little bit of nerves when he's walking on stage before Bonnaroo or going to Italy and playing in, in Rome or where have you be with a crowd that big. Yeah. I mean, you're playing crowds the size of a Pope's audience. Yeah. It's going to shake no matter yeah, who. You know, when you're so like, you know, when you're a Beck or Barry Manilow or a Springsteen or a, even like a Madonna or gaga i mean you're one name on a marquee literally versus a hundred thousand people so you either win them over because they're going to team up against you you know team up one way or another with you or against you you rarely see audiences uh, split and divide so recently i've been thinking about the world more and i we're coming out of ilmc last week and i've got a, a little bit of that international like flavor in my eyes for the moment and with that, I've been thinking about, and I don't think it's because ILMC. I think it's because David Klein is running around the country with Justin Bieber doing stadiums. And I said country, I mean, I should have said world. Because they haven't even hit the States with that the stadium tour yet. It's not going to be here until later this summer. But I'm seeing pictures of all of these places. I think they were in Australia last week. And it was like producing these stadium shows internationally is just gotta be jarring now when you're doing the stadiums you have a little bit bigger crew than when you have an arena crew because right. you've got a steel crew and you've got production guys versus road managers and tour accounting it's it becomes a bigger department but i'm watching what he is orchestrating yeah. around the globe it's no joke it's it no really joke. is got to take the kind of planning and even if you're not doing it yourself even if you're outsourcing to your team just the amount of pieces moving well, you, you can add 50 assistants to delegate things to, but you know, that's just more people that have to be managed as well. And it, again, it all, it all just, it falls on your shoulders and I'm not exactly known for being one of these guys that's doing all these giant stadium shows, you know, knock wood that one day I'm, I'm so lucky to be amongst some of these legends like Jake Berry's and things like that, but it's an operation and you know, you add language barriers in there, you add interpreters that yeah, they're your interpreter, but do they really know what you're saying? You know, obviously we, there's a currency exchange. That's there's going a currency on. exchange, so it's you know, and it and it fluctuates. So when you got the quote for something, it might not settle the same way. You know, when the show actually happens and settles, you know, five months later, that happens, of course, on all levels, not just on stadium shows. That could be as much as a club show um, in a foreign country. But then you also deal with what I found a lot is you know, certain countries don't have the same sense of urgency that we do. And that's, that's tricky. That's at all levels. You know, they, they don't operate uh, with the same time structures. They don't operate with the same safety levels. They don't hold certain things, you know, as important. And they're answering to you, not to the artist you're answering to. So it gets a little tricky. There's so many moving pieces. And at the end of the day, we talk about this quite a bit in the office. 
We actually took our entire staff. Wh- which office, Dan? You have like seven now. Amongst all of them, because we all <laughs> we use Slack. But a couple of years ago, we took the entire staff and put them on a. We did a retreat on a tour bus, and we followed the Trailer Park Boy tour for a couple of days, and ended here in Austin, where we shot a two night DVD at the Paramount. But I wanted my staff to see, particularly the marketing staff what it's like to be on the road, because the production guys get it. They're at the shows. But I wanted them to know what it was like to come off the bus, do a show, hang with the fans, then go to the bar, and then get on the bus and drive to the next city, and then be asked to wake up to do radio and be clever at 8 a.m. the next morning. I wanted them to know why acts are reluctant to do any press at 8 a.m. the next morning, what you're actually asking them to do at 8 a.m. the following morning. And then I wanted to see them the day after that when they had to do the same exact interview in another city and understand how droll and annoying that could be when you're hearing Jackie in the morning in Phoenix wanting to know what's it like to be on the road, what's it like to be you guys. And then you hear it again in San Diego and then you hear it in Houston and it's just like, it's the same thing fucking question and that's rough it's real easy to be like you know what it's only gonna help move the show 30 tickets yeah i want to sleep the fuck in you know normally i remember 15 years ago 2001 2002 i was with a young i was young myself i was with a young rock band called the calling and we were really trying to push their second record i kind of came at the end of their first record cycle that had great they really success got, they really never got above like ballrooms and they didn't quite fill them in no, for you know time. ironically is you know towards the end they couldn't sell a club in america but we would go do ten thousand in brazil and in the uk it was just insane how that works but loved in belgium but loved in belgium they loved the little blonde lead singer kit italy italy was big too <laughs> it's grueling and that's again that's that you know, to sing your praises again that's the genius of you and that you actually made the effort to put your guys through that ritual and that routine. And well, it's important to relate to what's going well, on because you guys are on the river without a paddle. And when you guys call and you need help or resources or something, if we're not there for you, we're literally just well, sending you a drift going, deal with it. And that's our reputation with the act that if I'm not giving you the resources right. to make that work, and whether it's obviously it's our counterparts to you and that pretty yeah. okay, our production guys. Well, I've had that conversation with other. Younger and older, frankly, production managers and, and production assistants where there's some some guys out there that have this mentality, be it a tour manager or manager, where they don't really get the fact that the promoter's your teammate. We're, we're all in this for the same reason, to deliver the best product, spend the least amount of money, and for everyone to walk away happy so we could do it again. And that goes from the manager to the agent to the artist to the promoter to the production assistant on the crew. It benefits all of us to do it again, right? Work is work. You know, everyone wins if we can do it harmoniously. And to take your staff through the paces of what these artists and their support crew sort of do on a day-to-day basis, well, that's genius because, I mean, I, I remember getting in, butting heads with day-to-day managers as a young production manager where I'd, I'd book a bus and they'd say, oh no, we already booked it, you're gonna use this one. And kind of saying, you know, you've never spent a night on a bus in your life. Like, what do you know? You know, what do you that's know a tough thing. Sleep? You really want to know what it's like to be in those coffins. Because, and that's what they call them. They call them coffin bunks. Yeah, and there's a thing where you can go have a beer in the lounge with the bus and you don't know what it's like. But until you've slept in a bunk when it's too cold that you have to, like, go to sleep in your sweatshirts and your jeans and double socks because it's winter and the bus only, it's so warm and you're just 
wrapped in like you're camping outside. Until you've done that, until you've got some guy snoring above you and a guy below you like making sounds that you're not sure what he's fucking doing, or until you've like met the most beautiful girl in the world and you only have four hours to close her and then have to try and like nail her in your bunk, you have no idea what it's like to do this and then like be pulling out and have to fucking be pulled up at work the next day and maybe even be in the coolest city in the world, not get to experience the food or the yeah. sights because you're never leaving the parking lot of that arena. That's yeah. the farthest you're ever going to uh, go. The parking lot or, or even underground, you know, you wake up to concrete and go back to sleep after you take a shower. But what is the importance of that bus or that bunk? You know, do you want a rigger that's responsible for hanging 80,000 pounds over the show's head? not being well rested you know and everyone needs to understand the importance of that you know and that goes into of course the safety and there's some production managers out there making great strides in that area but i think it's, everybody it's gets these impressions of you see the pimped out buses like dolly parton has got one of the best buses in the world sure. i think a lot of people have seen it on tv the star buses are awesome yeah. the crew buses not yeah. so great yeah you get used to what you're dealt with you know um there's pluses and minuses to everything you know hey it's great to stay at the four seasons of the ritz carlton until you want to order a fucking hamburger and it costs you 27 dollars versus staying hey, at a mid-range hotel where you can get one for ten dollars so you know there's plus and minuses you know an old bus may have uh some newer mattresses that have been put in because it's had to be upgraded so it might be a win-win or you know it might have just been retrofitted and uh, a brand new bus may still have some kinks that need to be worked out but what, again, what's important is that everyone gets comfortable and rest, especially when they're on it for months on end. Yeah, obviously there's different levels of touring, and some of the bigger acts are now flying yeah. from date to date. The privates have become a much bigger deal. Yeah. I love the, the super big acts that satellite out of one city, yeah. and then they just have the private flying from town to town. Private jet business, us road guys, one of our favorite conferences every year that maybe you'll show up to one time is, is the Touring Conference, which is in Palm Springs every year. So the week yeah. before Polestar always, I wish they'd separate them a little bit. Well, I showed up at both, didn't I? Maybe for just one night appearance. <laughs> Yeah. Polestar may be a little bit bigger of a commitment yeah, for me than it is I understand. for you. We each, we each have our things and our, our, our inches and, and what's more important. But I would like to check out Tourlink. Yeah, for, you know, it's really for production guys and for vendors and the networking beyond the panels and networking is, is tremendous. But just the reason I brought it up is because you brought up the private jet and flying and every year it seems like there's more and more jet brokers and agents at those conferences. I swear it's going to be like 50% jet brokers in two years yeah it's funny for the amount of times i see them at the end of the day it's just like for what it costs you to fly private if you got a decent act and you're only in the air for two hours it really isn't worth yeah. the extra money yeah like the hassle of airports nowadays is such a pain in the ass for everybody you know if, if the bus makes sense for some people and they can find their comfort in it uh, that's always the best way to go we deal with a lot of celebrities from the movie side that want to go out and be in their bands and you have these conversations where it's like we want to fly. And it's like, you know, flying actually isn't as easy as you think. It's right. like the bus where you start at the venue and you wind up at the next venue. Even if we get hotels. Yeah. It's like it's genius because you don't have to go through security. You don't have to get up early. Right. There's no wake up call. It's just you wake up there. Yeah. It's genius. And you can point it out to them after a couple of days of them schlepping and checking luggage and getting on the other yeah. side and delays. And maybe you have to fly through another city opposed to the bus goes right to the door of the venue. You know, there's nothing better than a bus. And one of my favorite moves always, you know, before I had to go in with a runner at 7 a.m. if I'm leaving a hotel, before I had to go in with a runner to, you know, go mark out with my riggers would be to take a shower in that hotel room the night before and then go to sleep on the bus because you wake up at the gig same thing you know 
same thing. Forego the hotel room. You know, take your shower, do what you got to do. Then when it's time to go to bed, hit that bus. So you don't have to wake up early in the morning and pack and get out the door. And every minute helps. Yeah, especially when you're about to have a long day at the venue. Yeah, well, that's so. cool. What's coming up for you this year, man? First of all, I think I, I felt it at the end of last year that this. I hope it's shaping up for everybody to be the great year I expect it to be because there's a lot of awesome cool tours going out this year. Just a couple weeks ago, even though we're coming off uh, the last most recent leg of Barry's farewell tour, he's got uh, five dates they just announced throughout the U.S., so that should be really cool. Back that guy's farewell tour just keeps going. Yeah, you know. Going. Not that my Scorpions dates don't keep getting added on tomorrow. Well, you know, in Barry's mind and in all of our minds, there's a difference between touring and doing shows. Barry's never going to stop. It's his... Well, a guy like him can play Vegas forever. He could go back anytime he wanted to to Vegas, hands down. Barry's a big... He loves doing great special events. You know, a couple nights in New York, nights in LA, benefit show at Windsor Castle, one of the coolest things we've ever done. Fourth of July on the Capitol lawn. Yeah, it's been pretty awesome. That's, you know, doing it's shows. time for a troubadour. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm ready. That would be cool. I'm not sure I could fit all six semis in there, but hey, we'll figure it out. We go big always, <laughs> I think you guys can figure out how to make yeah. that work. He'll always be doing something. It's just it's just what Barry yeah, does. Know, really, six semis? Yeah, five to six, depending what we do. That's including sound, right? Oh yeah, it's a full. We carry full production. Not true. We go five. I think five in the U.S. Now we're down to, but uh, yeah, down so, to five semis. Down to five. So Barry's out there just announced some dates, which should, really should be great, and in some Chicago and Nassau and uh, the Forum in L.A. So uh, we're looking forward to those. Beck's got some runs coming up, and. Uh, you know, towards the summer, he's due with a new album out soon. Everybody's hoping for because <laughs> the stuff we've heard so far is amazing. Singles that have been released like Dreams and Wow. So that's we're all having fun listening to those. And I hope I can continue supporting, you know, with my input on bands like Spoon and Jimmy Eat World because those are some of my favorites. See what else. Awesome. One thing I'm going to ask you before I let you go. Production managers seem to have always, the good ones anyway, seem to always have work. And it's always amazing. And I think it was Rungi that was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago that mentioned that he doesn't know where the call's coming from, but he knows that if he's been out of work for a couple of weeks, somewhere between week two and week three and a half, the phone will ring and that'll yeah. set up the next nine months. You know, Do you just trust or is that a lot of work making sure that call comes? I think it's faith. I think it's, it's always giving it your best and staying connected and networked, but always just being a good guy. I've had been lucky enough to have to turn down a couple of things recently and calls that have come from you know, really random sources, not fellow production managers, not managers, but from vendors who said, hey, I heard of this gig, you gotta do it. You know, one of my good friends who runs a labor company out of LA the other day called me to see if I was available to do a tour he heard about that was looking for a production manager that someone had asked him about. So, you know, you stay true, you stay humble. Again, when we were talking about Jim, Jim's become such a legend recently. Rungi's just, he's a great, humble, sincere guy who is appreciative of every opportunity he gets. and whether you follow, just know him from seeing him at conferences or actually friends with him or are lucky enough to be his friend on the Facebook. <laughs> You'll see that he, whenever Jim starts a tour, is in the middle of the tour, he's always still in awe of what he gets to do. And that's what we carry. You know, even though some of us that have been doing this for crazy to say 20 plus years now, we all do it with, hopefully with a humility where we never forget how lucky we are and we remember each other because we all need each other. It's, it's a community. It really is. It's a, the production side's a real community good one a growing one awesome man i don't know if there's a nicer guy in the industry but uh i appreciate you taking the time buddy for uh i know it's a hard week for you. you've got a ton of stuff going on uh, you know i'm lucky i was able to do this that we're here to meet in austin i mean weather's beautiful you know i'm not sure when this is gonna air but right now our friends in the east coast are getting battered 
So we're thinking of you here in Austin. And, uh, and laughing our asses off. And laughing our asses off. All right, Promoter 101 with Sasha. Thank you, man. Yeah, thanks, Danny. Sasha is one of my dear friends going back to the stiletto days. He is a phenomenal tour manager, simply one of the best out there on the road. If you are a promoter or a venue and you see Sasha's name on a rider or a show coming to your room, be lucky that you did. You know you're going to have a great day, a great experience. Just simply one of the best guys out there. Hi, it's Paola Palazzo from Live Nation Concerts Canada, and I'm on Promoter 101. Coming up next, stand-up comic from NBC's Last Comic Standing, Amy Miller shares tales from the road. Promoter 101 joined by an old friend, Amy Miller. How are you doing? I'm doing good, Dan. How are you? Pretty good. So not are you only experiencing the world of success in the comedy world right now, but you understand the other side of the business as you worked at the Aladdin Theater in Portland for years. So you really have both sides of the business on stage and behind it. Yeah, sometimes it's more of a curse than a blessing, but <laughs> I think it's helpful. And as you know, I was also at Ticketfly for three years. I was one of the first employees at Ticketfly. So kind of, uh, yeah, on every side of the thing in a way. I think it can make me annoying to book sometimes, but I think it's definitely an asset to have, you know, as my career grows and as the venue spaces I'll be doing grow, you know, I just kind of have a little more information that most people don't have. So that's nice. Yeah. You were on Last Comic Standing and did very well. That certainly boosted your career, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, those kinds of things, you, you know, you get enough screen time that even if I wasn't in the top five or whatever, I was a semifinalist, it still kind of upped my pay a little bit, you know, certainly upped the number of gigs and also my position at the club where then I went from, you know, featuring to headlining at a few more places than before. So yeah, for sure, it was really helpful. And you moved from Portland to L.A., so you've really, in the last couple of years, changed your game up as how seriously you're taking this. Yeah, definitely. I've been in Portland for three years, and a lot of people thought that was a strange move because I started in the Bay Area. But uh, there's a lot of path to this thing now, and uh, I sort of chose kind of a unique one, which is that I went from a larger market to a middle market before I made the leap to LA. And I think it worked out really well for me. I'm super happy that I did that. But yeah, I've been in LA about eight months and uh, we're doing the thing. The thing. You're doing it up. Now, you've always had this, <laughs> this very real feel about you of you ask for things. You don't just sit there and wait. You'll get the call. Hey, I want to open up for this act. You reach out. You're more of a go-getter than most acts. You don't ask, you don't get kind of a thing. I hope that's true. And, you know, that's met with a variety of responses. Some bookers really appreciate that. And I think maybe from being on the other side of it, I also saw how often, for example, like, you know, there was no opener booked because there's a breakdown in communication between the promoter and the agent and the headliner and the headliner originally is going to bring someone, but then they don't. And all of a sudden, you know, you have a sold out house and the show's tonight and the venue's just realizing that there's no opener. I do try to reach out as early as I can for opening spots and also to book myself out on the road as a headliner. And I think path of least resistance works well for a lot of bookers they want to fill their calendar and if they already know me and they already like me then a lot of the time they're really happy that I reached out because you know I'm not right in front of their face it's hard to just remember like oh yeah you know we had this person two years ago and I really liked her I'm going to reach out so some people really enjoy it and uh some bookers probably find it annoying but 
you know, I got to work. So it's kind of what I do. No, I think it's a refreshing thing to actually hear from someone saying, hey, I like that person. I would really love to be on stage with them. Yeah. It's always a nice thing. Now, you've got an album out, and it's on Kill Rockstar. Mm-hmm. Kind of a, a woman-empowered label, if you will. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the bands that they've had over the years pretty deeply embedded in the Riot Girl movement and Olympia and, you know, Leader Kenny and all those bands. And that label's run by a woman. Her name's Portia, and she's great. But it's also like kind of a Pacific Northwest institution. So I felt like it was really fitting for it to be my first album to work with them and, you know, really like put a button on that three years that I spent in Portland and whatever that meant for my career and however my material developed there. It just seemed like a good fit. And I was really honored to be asked by them. You know, that was lucky. That was something that I didn't have to go after. You know, I I had plans to make an album and I envisioned sort of doing it myself or just um, making it and then shopping it around to labels. So it's always great when someone comes to you. And and, uh, I really like the roster of comedians and bands that they have. And, you know, it's worked out great. Okay. So you've got this world of you're booking yourself at this point. But you've got an album out, you're on a label, you've got TV recognition, you're headlining clubs all over the country, you're supporting national acts. This is where you fight for real management and a bigger agency at this point? Is that the next step? Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of one of my goals for this year. And I'm kind of at the point where I'm like working either way. Like I'm now making a living off of comedy. So I really want representation that I'm a good fit for and that I like as well. Not that it's super easy to find an agent that you would love to hang out with, (laughs) as you know. And again, that's also information that I have from working on the other side where I'm like, well, this person works with comics, but not a good fit for me. Or I always had a really good experience working with this guy. And so, you know, in some ways I know a little bit too much, but it's good because the number of comedians that get representation very early because they were seen at a festival or something and they go with the first person who asks right away and then fire their manager and agent, you know, a year later, once they have a little bit more recognition is most of my friends. So I've kind of avoided that step of it. And now I can, you know, wait it out a little bit to find someone that I think, you know, is really in my corner, which, you know, they're definitely out there. There are managers that come to shows and and really laugh at their clients material and and really get it and uh, are passionate about, you know, who they are. And that's kind of what I'm holding out for. But yeah, definitely a goal for this year. Somebody that adds value. Yeah, somebody that adds value, somebody that understands where my appeal might be because I do have a fan base, but, you know, I'm not a bro, like, you know, <laughs> I'm not a sort of Daniel Tosh, like, handsome white guy situation. And I'm also not like 23-year-old hot girl that you could really put into, you know, any TV role. So it's like meeting someone who finds and understands like, you know, where I fit in all of that stuff. And yeah, I've had some interest lately and just kind of waiting to see like who's the best fit. Awesome. Now it is Promoter 101 and we've got a very industry audience. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the fun, uh, exciting stories from Life on the Road? (laughs) Good stories or bad stories? (laughs) Well, I think if you tell it right, it could all be good stories, right? Right. I mean, I think since, you know, I have a marketing background, I did marketing at Ticketfly and also I'm working for a promoter. Probably one of the biggest obstacles that I run into on the road is, you know, just sort of like 
a lack of promotion of the show and, or I'm doing most of the work and, and, you know, a booker gets pretty lucky with me because I understand that side of it. So I can go into Omaha or Boise or wherever I'm coming up next and know how to market myself locally. But a lot of the time it's still an uphill battle. And like, you know, if you think any music promoters are behind the times, like comedy clubs are sometimes so much further behind. It's really like without losing the gig or annoying the booker, finding gentle ways to say like, hey, have you put the show on the internet at all? (laughs) Or, you know, just an idea I had. So sort of fighting like old school bookers is really a big part of it. As far as fun industry stories, I don't know. I mean, at this point, it's kind of all (laughs) so much of it is a blur. I've been in a different city every weekend for probably almost a year. And uh it's definitely fun, but uh, there's always those nights where someone's like, oh, well, we forgot to cut your check. Can we mail it to you? And I'm like, no, <laughs> definitely not. You know, I've been here all weekend. I, I expect to get paid. Certainly a lot of creeps on the road. You know, I'm a lady traveling by myself and I'm pretty, I feel pretty, you know, safe most of the time and sure of myself. But there's always a that headliner that's like, you know, not very nice for three days in a row. And then all of a sudden Sunday night is like, I'm not going to name any names, by the way, but, but Hey, uh, you know, want to come stay at my hotel? And I'm like, which part of this weekend did you think was so attractive to me? Was it the part where you were farting in the green room for three days or the part where you kicked me off the couch so you could lay down and eat Buffalo wings? Like, do you really think I'm just dying to, sleep with you now is nonstop polarity with comedians. That's a normal everyday kind of thing. It pretty much is. And and in a way I really feel for it, especially now that I'm doing the road life where it's like some of these guys are they're never home. They're super lonely. And so the people they spend the most time with are the opening acts. So if one of those opening acts happens to be a woman, then it's just like worth a shot. And it works probably a lot of the time for even that farting guy. <laughs> you know, it just wasn't gonna work with me. But yeah, it's unfortunately part of the deal. And I have sympathy for it, but it's all about the approach, you know, like there's definitely a couple headliners I've been tempted by, but in general, I try not to mix business with pleasure. (laughs) Right. Makes sense. Can we go back to the, I didn't cut your check thing? Is that normal for comics to get fucked on the road? And I'm clearly talking more financially than the last story. I hope it's not normal. You know, I've heard similar stories from many, many people. I think it's becoming less acceptable. And that's partially as comedians have more options for how to make it, how to make money, how to make a name for themselves than the tolerance for, you know, this like small town club owner who all of a sudden tries to stiff you is much, much lower. Partially because we've shared the stories and like because of podcasts too, like this and that comedians do where as a young comic, you can go, oh, okay, so, you know, I've heard plenty of people say on podcasts that like if a booker, you know, says I forgot your check or, you know, or we don't have it right now. Can I mail it? Like you have to fight it because that guy's never going to pay you. So just sharing information is really helpful. And I think it's less normal, but it definitely still happens, you know. And again, it goes back to that promoting problem where a lot of the time they don't even push the show. You know, they might make less money than they anticipated. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, we don't want to pay the talent, even though, you know, it's not our fault, not necessarily on us to promote the show. So is that a normal 
everyday thing out there in some of the smaller markets where the promoters will take advantage of the acts and try not to pay you? I would say it is not normal anymore. And, you know, now that we have all this information, it's not something that happens very often, but it definitely still happens occasionally. Or just even on the other side of the industry, people booking TV show spots and telling you it's for exposure. And, you know, I mean, the same shady practices that have always happened, but a lot of those guys are, you know, not going to be in business much longer if they don't want to pay talent regularly. So I would say, no, it's not normal, but it definitely still happens. And I would imagine anything with real TV exposure you're willing to do pretty much just for the exposure anyway, if it's a real name thing. Well, yeah, but it's like people can often sell it as a real thing. And if you're a young enough, naive enough comic, then you'll do it not knowing that it's not going to be seen by anybody. You know, in the industry proper, there's plenty of protections put in place because if you do a union gig, you always have a daily minimum. And that's super helpful because as a young comic, you never have to go like, oh man, are you guys going to pay me? Because you just get whatever the union minimum is, which is pretty good for a day of telling jokes. But it's all the gigs that are outside of that. Sometimes people can get shady about, but it's hard to know what real exposure because everything's so fragmented. You know, it's like, is a CISO gig real exposure? Is you're on Crackle? Like (laughs) all those apps that are coming up are such a small percentage of your audience that it's like, I mean, I sort of fight for pay before everything else because that's meeting my immediate needs, like paying rent. And the exposure will come either way. That makes sense. It seems like a very odd thing. Like paying talent seems like the most important thing is if you lose your supply line to talent, you're out of business. Yeah, exactly. And I've seen even over the last few years, um, you know, comedy club bookers, specific bookers getting cheaper and cheaper. And what happens is then, you know, if you have an act like Tom Segura is a good example where Tom Segura doesn't have a major TV credit to his name and he's a massive comedian. I mean, he's done, you know, late night, of course, but as far as like he's selling sitcom star tickets without that credit. And so there are bookers that, again, I won't name that he's worked with that he's like, you know, this guy hasn't changed my pay in five years. So I'm just not going to work with his club chain anymore because, you know, he owns and books five clubs or whatever it is. But you know, he's trying to pay me the same for headlining as he did when I started headlining. And that's just not the situation I'm in. And, you know, comics tell each other these stories and then you kind of file it away like, oh, okay, well, now I know when I'm, you know, headlining that level of club, this booker is very cheap and we remember that stuff. So it always shocks me that uh, people would ever try to get one over on us because comedy is so, so tiny. It's not like music. It's like, You know, I'm one degree away from every comedian in the world. You know, like I have close friends that are close friends with Louie. I don't know him, but that's how tiny it is. And I wouldn't be surprised if he walked into, you know, a a show that I was on tomorrow to do a guest set. So bookers in particular that try to screw over comedians really don't get served well in the long term because we all hear about it. So it's always interesting to me that people are still trying that funny business, but it happens. It's interesting that you say that the one degree of separation is you go to uh, Montreal for the Just for Laugh Festival and you see it. You see the comics hanging out with each other the way that bands don't get to do because they don't have this roots of coming up with nine bands on a show where they're all together constantly and traveling together and doing these random things in Duluth. So years of intermixed 
shows and club appearances and comedy tours and TV auditions, there really is this unity of it. You may not know this person, but you know the person that knows that person and everybody can find everybody. And it's amazing to see them interact. Also, really amazing in the comedy world is not all rock bands have the brains to manage their own careers, but most comics write at least some of their own material. And that comes from the ability to have deep thought and understand bigger concepts like management. So you'll see many comics, even if they have an agent and a TV agent, a business manager, a entertainment manager, and a lawyer still out there talking for themselves because they have the ability to understand and concept and grasp all of these different business levels and relationships. Yeah, absolutely. I do think comics work a little bit smarter. And some of that, again, comes from that community where it's like if you're a band starting out, you you know other musicians, but you're not necessarily privy to all of their experience and, you know, information about the business itself because it happens. You you get beers with people. And uh, for comics, that's just that's just right, you know, normal stuff that will go out and just go, oh, here's a, something that happened to me with a booker or or I just got a new manager. We're always sharing this information until we learn from each other. And yeah, I mean, I think also like our level of horror story early on in our careers is so much worse than a lot of musicians because again, you know, if you're in a band, you're never playing for a room that's silent because that's not how music works. But, uh, you know, our, our horror stories and hell gig stories are often like partially business and partially, you know, that, um, just the show went haywire, the show went weird. And so we're always passing these stories around and I think we end up working smarter for sure. And also because we have access to those big comics, you know, if you're a band starting out, you don't, just get to like sit down with the stones and and go hey tell me about some of your early experiences but it's a regular thing that happens in comedy that you'll just end up on a show with one of your heroes and then chatting after and just absorbing information and it's a really really lucky thing i'm sure you've seen hbo series crashing with pete holmes i have yes okay is that real is that the comic lifestyle is that grind really sum up what's going on out there Uh, part of it's real sure Part of it is a little unbelievable to a lot of us. I mean, the Sarah Silverman didn't invite you to sleep on her couch after meeting her for 12 seconds. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That Pete was still really bad at comedy and, and open about that. And that's part of the funniness of the show is like, oh, look how much this guy sucks. And then these important headliners keep reaching out to help him is very unrealistic. I mean, there are so many new comics that for the most part, you don't stand out to headliners unless you're doing well, getting a lot of laughs or they want to sleep with you. And, and those are sort of the three scenarios. No one just like goes, Oh man, this guy sucks. I'm going to help him out. You know? So you're saying everybody wants to sleep with Pete Holmes. (laughs) I have no idea. I mean, I think the show is like really precious in a way, just, you know, first of all, Pete is not that naive as a person. And I don't fully buy that he was even when he started comedy. And so there are some, viewpoints that are really bizarre on that show to me but the grind itself is real in a lot of ways yeah I mean the whole thing about like you know you can open for me because you have a car that's definitely something that happens 
in New York, not as much on the West Coast, but because nobody living in the city has a car. So if, a, if you know, Artie Lang gets booked in, in, you know, far away somewhere in New Jersey, then that kind of thing will happen. But they also bring someone that's funny. They don't just get the new kid because he has a car. But the crazy people that you meet on the road, people trying to give you drugs, uh, <laughs> you know, strange older women trying to get you back to their apartment. Like, yeah, I mean, that's even <laughs> real for me. So I believe that <laughs> it happened to Pete. But there's also like a naivete to that show that I just don't fully believe in. But it's, yeah, it's Pete's a great obviously show. a pretty hip guy and, and is very quick in real life. Very. Yeah. Quick. And he's super smart. Yeah. Right on. Thank you so much, Amy, for taking the time and talking to us on Promoter 101. If you want to check out Amy, you can go to her website, amymillercomedy.com, or you can find her on Twitter at Amy Miller. Thank you so much, Amy. Thanks, Dan. See you soon. You can feel Amy is out there living it, trying to earn her way onto the next level. We wish her the best of luck. Hey, it's Mark David from the Music Venue Trust, and you're listening to Promoter 101. Well, that's it for Promoter 101 this week. In the weeks to follow, our guests are going to include Ted Cohen, Trevor Solomon, Stuart Galbraith, Ariel Hyatt, Stephen Riff, Phil Rodriguez, Jeff Cohen, Sean Edison, Brian Zisk, Larry LeBlanc, Tom Chauncey, Paula Palazzo, Chuck Randall, Rob Zifarelli, and so many more. If you have any thoughts or feedbacks about the podcast, we want to hear from you. Send us an email with your ideas at steiny at promoter101.net. And keep up with us on Twitter. I'm at W. Luke Pierce. Dan's at the Jew, and the show is at promoters101. Be sure to subscribe to Promoter 101 wherever you podcast, and please help us spread the word by telling as many friends as possible. Seriously, tell some people. Please. If you missed any of the past podcasts, you can always catch up at Promoter101.net. Past guests include Jamie Loeb, Ruth Gonzalez, Andrea Johnson, Don Holliday, Ellie X, Sarah Mertz, Julia Frank, Alma Shek, Whitney Bond, and so many more. I'm Luke Pierce, and for Steiny, have a great week. Trevor Solomon, Crashline Productions. I'm on Promoter 101.